Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for today's uh, AIWA Los Angeles Las Vegas section, uh, section E meeting. Today we have very exciting uh, topic and very important at the uh, 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 VIP speaker. It's uh, uh, so stay tuned and uh, enjoy the event. So before that, we have a couple logistics to go over. Um, first of all, thanks a lot to AIWA headquarters. I provide this wonderful Zoom platform, which is very expensive. And after the event, the recording and podcast will be posted and uh, we'll send you the links. Uh, and thanks a lot to the speaker, uh, Mr. Ron Quill. So if you have any bandwidth issue, you can uh, use the phone dial-in for the audio and keep the internet for, for video. That will save the bandwidth. And in the during the event, uh, you're welcome to type your question in the Q&A box, but uh, it's preferred you keep your question toward the end after presentation. In the Q&A session, uh, you can click raise hand or you can uh, indicate in the chat box that you have question, we'll uh, turn the mic to you. Uh, it's better for interactive uh, discussion, uh, Q&A. So a few words about AIWA. AIWA is a, a national, international organization, nonprofit, professional, membership-based, uh, promoting aerospace. And uh, our present is Mr. Basil Hassan, Executive Director, Mr. Daniel Dunbacher. And uh, our section chair uh, is Dr. Jeffrey Bruchel from Raytheon. Okay, so there are different level of membership, uh, professional, also young early career professional under 35 above college. We have student, educator, corporate associate, retiree, and high school student recently. And uh, once you join member, you can start to use AIWA Engage to uh, network with the uh, other members and experts. And the uh, daily launch, Aerospace America, very nice magazine. And uh, you enjoy great discount for uh, attending AIWA conferences. Also career, uh, uh, you know, uh, you can connect with people and advance your career. Also honors, you can advance your membership uh, to associate fellow, fellow, um, an honorary fellow. Uh, for example, our section chair, Dr. Jeffrey Bruchel, is uh, Edward Fellow, and uh, Bill Gerstenmeier uh, is, is uh, honorary fellow. Queen Shotwell also, honorary fellow. And uh, also awards, you know, uh, for your uh, technical work, our service, lectureships, uh, education, paper, uh, those kinds of things. And uh, AWA has uh, multiple uh, main national conferences or forum. The next one is the SciTech uh, uh, on January 3rd to 7th. So a few words for Southern California. We are blessed to have a huge uh, community of aerospace. Uh, it's very exciting from, you know, uh, North Groman, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be launched December 22nd. Then we have Virgin Galactic, JPL, uh, Raytheon Aerospace Corporation, SpaceX, uh, you name it, you know, Launcher Space, Lockheed Martin, Aerojet Rocketdyne, and, uh, and the Ampere for electric hybrid aircraft, Boeing, of course, Honeywell. Uh, we also have newsletter opportunities, so you're welcome to uh, post your articles or your activity, photo, etc., to get engaged with AIWA. We also post events on AIWA channel on YouTube and podcast. Recently, we got uh, ranked uh, number 101 uh, in Canada for nonprofit podcast. It's a great honor. 
So tonight our speaker uh, is uh, uh, our distinguished Mr. Ron Quill, is a retired space and thermal systems engineer, is a member of the Apollo Lunar Roving Vehicle LRV team. Um, he began his NASA career in 1965 as a co-op student as the Marshall uh, Space Flight Center, uh, joining full-time in 1969 after graduating from Florida State University with a degree in engineering mechanics. He has more than 51 years of extensive experience on space engineering projects, both for government and industry. That's really amazing. As thermal control engineer on the lun uh, lunar roving vehicle team, his responsibilities include design test verification and mission support engineering for the vehicle's thermal control system. Uh, in his words, a high speed and the challenging test on America's spacecraft with wheels. For his contribution, uh, he was awarded the Silver Snoopy, the NASA Astronaut Corps' own special award for outstanding performance. Following his Apollo experiences, uh, Mr. Creel worked on other thermal engineering projects at NASA, including the laser geodynamic satellite, LAGEOS, the High Energy Astronomical Observatory, EO, and the X-ray calibration test facility, and performed extensive thermal stress analysis work on space shuttle main engine, SSNE, internal flow components. After his NASA career, Mr. Creel performed systems engineering on strategic defense initiative organization, Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars was space-based defense projects, including extensive field testing in the Pacific. Pacific. He continues thermal engineering on several satellite programs, including the International Space Station Launch to Activation Program at the Boeing Company. Uh, Mr. Creel also served as the thermal subject matter expert on the Independent Readiness Review Team for US Air Force satellites. During the Apollo moon mission using uh, the uh, LRV, Mr. Creel experienced the frustration of trying to cope with the adverse uh, effects of lunar dust and is an active and enthusiastic resource for technology development efforts to develop isolation technology for mitigation of adverse lunar dust effects for NASA. He's also interested in contributing to development of nuclear systems for survival and the robotic and manned exploration of the moon. He is a much sought after expert and a speaker who willing, uh, willingly describes the Apollo LRV thermal design, test verification and the mission support system and the shared experience gained in coping with the harsh lunar environment. He supports several education projects such as lectures at, um, and the NASA Human Exploration Rover Challenge held at the US Space and Rocket Center for high school and the college student teams and enjoys sharing his experience with students and, uh, and the young and old aerospace professionals. He has also formed a team which is developing the rover, the Lunar Roving Adventures 3D edutainment simulation for student involvement and the challenge. Uh, challenge. It's really amazing career uh, Mr. Creel has. So without further ado, let's welcome uh, Mr. Ron Creel for tonight's uh, distinguished presentation. Thank you, Ken. I'm very happy to be here tonight. This is part of what we call passing the torch. It's been 50 years or more, but uh, I'm still around. And uh, the title, uh, the subtitle, my main title is Lunar Roving Adventures, which I really had back then and continue to have some adventures. But the subtitle is Dust, Dust Everywhere. What are we going to do? 
I do point out that some, most of the animations in here were created by my associate in Canada, Ottawa, Canada, Don McMillan. Is this the outline of the presentations in that uh, I'm gonna go over uh, the design, the, the lunar module design, how we interface with the lunar module, how we flew to the moon, operational thermal environment on the moon. I'll talk about the thermal control design, testing, modeling, and performance. I'll talk about two challenges. Challenge number one is coping with dust. And I'll talk about the solution that I've found is what we recommend to do. Challenge two is coping with exposure to moon temperature extremes, to extremes that we didn't have to endure on the Apollo program. Hot and cold temperature exposure mitigation solutions will be presented. Then I'll do a summary and path forward for renewed moon exploration. This is the rover. This is the rover that we designed and came up with. It's like a golf cart for the moon. Uh, Boeing and General Motors were contracted for four lunar rovers. Uh, the, uh, the first one, there was a 17-month schedule for first vehicle delivery, of, uh, 17 months from October 69 to March of 1971. We had the secret there was we had 22 fixed requirements, which prevented requirements creep. We didn't meet the 400-pound original weight goal for the LRV and space support equipment to go inside the lunar module, but we were very uh, adequately uh, close that uh, we went ahead with the project. There was, there was no going back. This rover, as you see, was a four-wheel vehicle, had independent drive systems on the, on the four different wheels, had in unique wire mesh wheels, which I'll talk a little bit more about, and uh, it had uh, seats, rudimentary seats there for the astronauts to sit in with their back backpacks on. The crew station also had a T-shaped hand controller for the driver on the left, primary driver to, to, steer, to apply power, steering and braking. Then they had, we had certain communication equipment uh, attached to the front end in that we had a, the first color, color TV camera on the moon, uh, high gain antenna to, to, for them to focus back on the earth and send that TV picture back. Then a communication unit called the Lunar Communications Relay Unit, which was uh, on the, put on the front end of the rover and it provided the communications back to the lunar module and to earth through the low gain antenna. Uh, and this whole system also, we had to provide on the back end a tool, tool, tool rack for them to science and science and accrue equipment storage on the back end and even had storage or storage under the seats. We'll talk about the fenders a little bit here to come up. The final weight and lunar module were around 510, 520 pounds. That includes the space support equipment. We only had 10 pounds budget for thermal control, 10 pounds. How did we get to the moon? How did we get the rovers to the moon? Get myself back up here. There we go. We, we, the folded rovers, I'll talk about the folded, I'll show you the folded rover, was, was protected inside the spacecraft lunar module adapter, that's the slaw, until removal of the command and service module and then docked with the lunar module and pulled the whole assembly out and we were ready to go to the moon. And I uh, uh, want to show you here that this is the, this is the magical uh, Apollo lunar module, the lunar, lunar module of the limb uh, had an ascent stage and a descent stage. And... Uh, both of those are accomplished within a single vehicle. Uh, rover, I want to show you the, uh, this is the rover folded and stored in the uh, uh, lunar module uh, with the floor panels uh, on, on board. And I'll show you now how, how, how was the rover folded up? This, this, was a, this was a magical thing that, uh, not magical, it was great engineering to accomplish to uh, fold the rover up.
There you go, see it folding, folding of the rover. Right, right. And I wanna show it again, I wanna hold up, I wanna show you an important part was the, uh, uh, this had to be done by several technicians pulling the different, folding the different parts together. And then uh, in the process of unfolding, if I could get it to stop here, I want to point out these torsion torsion springs. Torsion springs assisted in the unfolding process. You know what I didn't do here? And I want to go back. I want to go back here. I didn't show the the Apollo the, the Lunar Grand Prix on my first chart. Uh, this is a, a a video. The only video we have of the rover performing on the moon. We were going to originally do that on Apollo 15 to get additional data on how the rover sat on the moon and how it transported on the moon. Uh, with, with one crewman. Uh, holding a 16 millimeter uh, camera and taking a movie. And it's called the Lunar Grand Prix. And I'm gonna show you now, we didn't do an Apollo 15 because the, uh, uh, we didn't get the data because the film jammed in the camera. But Apollo 16, this is John Young driving on Apollo 16. You'll see, look at the thousands of craters on the moon. It was a magnificent desolation as Buzz Aldrin has said. Uh, and uh, a challenge for the astronauts to drive around most, a lot of, a lot of craters but also to drive through other craters uh, to get to the places we wanted to go on the moon. And here he's gonna really, really gun it here. Here he's gonna gun it and come back at fairly high speed, maximum speed about only about seven, eight miles per hour, but still uh, uh, quite a lot on the moon with all, this, all these craters. You can see the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package off here to the left, already, already deployed. You can see the dust being deflected by the uh, fenders on the, on the rover. We can come back and show this video again later. I, sorry I didn't show it when my band. I'm trying to go too fast here. Okay, so I've shown you how the rover was folded up, placed in, placed inside the lunar module. You'll notice that this lower left-hand picture shows you that, that those four panels were taken off before it was actually placed inside the assembly. The crew had to go in to the assembly through this, through this opening here, through these doors, and actually put the batteries and the insulation together, system together, and then fasten those uh, panels, those floor panels back onto the assembly while it was inside the slot panel uh, a few days, maybe a day or so before launch, and then monitor the battery temperatures. And uh, here you can see the crew actually uh, checking out uh, the rover uh, in different phases of the unfolding. How do you get to the moon? On the Saturn, on the mighty Saturn V program, we did the low earth orbit, got ready to go, then I uh, did a uh, burn, a third, uh, the second restart of the uh, third stage engine that showed in the process down below and actually kicked it off to go to the moon. What I wanted to show you in this chart here is uh, our thermal control during transit was based upon what's called a barbecue. The assembly of the command module docked with the lunar module uh, was barbecued to balance out the uh, solar energy and the radiation from the components. And, uh, I'll, I'll do it again. I'll show you all again. This is a little bit faster. It was actually three revolutions per hour, so it's much slower, but it sped up for this for this demonstration. I can get this thing to come up here. There you go. There you go. Show it again. And uh, I can pause it there. That's maximum solar heating on our floor panels. Notice a deflection panel here that was uh, some insulation that was done and attached to the bottom so to, to protect from the burn of the descent engine when it was landing on the moon. Also, this plume deflector for the reaction control system there was four of those on the sides of the, of the lunar module to protect the co components from, this, from the burns of these engines. And I'll let it, I'll let it finish up now. I can't do this. Uh, 
Well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll just go on to the next chart. <laughs> you got to see the barbecue. So you barbecue on the way of the moon to balance out the energy. Uh, what happened on, uh, we thought that what would happen would be that uh, on the missions and going to the moon, we'd start out at a 75, 80 degrees Fahrenheit temperature on the batteries, and they would cool down to about 40 or 50 down to the lower limit. We never had that. Uh, two of the missions, the rovers got to the moon at 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And on the third mission, I'll tell you about that in a little bit, uh, we actually got there much hotter and we had to do some special provisions for that. This chart also shows a relative comparison of the dis distances traveled by uh, our US moon rovers, Apollo 15, 16, and 17. Uh, also, they threw in on this chart here some what, opportunity and, and spirit on Mars showing the relative distance of those. Certainly, the Lunacod 2 uh, on the moon uh, up until just recently had their distance record for driving on the moon. I think the Chinese now hold that on their one of their rovers. And uh, this gives you a good comparison. This, gives, this table gives you some information about the difference between, notice that for the previous Apollo missions, Apollo 11, 12, and 14, we collected about 98, 98 kilograms of, of, of soil, regular soil samples. Uh, we almost equal that on a, just uh, that amount for the single mission on Apollo 15, and then exceeded that for the Apollo 16 and 17, finally collecting about 230 pounds, 117 kilograms on Apollo 17. Went a total distance of 35, 35, about 36 kilometers, which is about 22 miles on Apollo 17, and went a little bit longer, a little bit over, a little over seven hours EVA. Here are, here are the three rovers on the moon. Apollo 15, 15 was the farthest north that we explored. Oh, Apollo 15 was the farthest north that we explored. Apollo uh, 16 was uh, the farthest south. And Apollo 17 was the farthest to the east. So it gave you a good, what you need to know about Apollo 16, Apollo 16 was going to be the, the grand, grand uh, uh, experiment here on the moon for the, for the public. It was time such that the prime time would be uh, available for TV coverage. Well, they had an issue of a, a, a bad signal coming when they undocked around, going around the moon. There was some concern about whether or not a, a, a backup system would work or not. So they've spent about five hours debugging that and figured out, oh, it wasn't a problem at all. But by that time, that uh, meant that they, when they landed, they didn't go about exploring right during the prime TV coverage. So we got no prime TV coverage. And that certainly didn't help with people that wanted to fail the missions anyway. We'd already canceled Apollo 18, 19, and 20, the last three missions. O'Hara just shows you the mountainous region of Apollo 17, which was much, much more adventurous. I want to go back here and check to see if I missed out anything. No, we'll give that. Now then, let's talk about when you get to the moon. When you go, when you, excellent, it's easier. Okay, uh, for those three missions, Apollo 15, 16, and 17, uh, we were, uh, us, the rovers, as well as the lunar module and the astronauts only participated in the early morning period on the moon. It's time such that, that, that uh, if you missed the launch opportunity, you waited a month so that you could realign and maintain that landing and exploration during the morning period on the moon, which is which is this temperature range here. You have the moon has repeating 29 and a half day cycles uh, of, of solar heating for half of that, and then cooling, uh, eclipsing for half of that for nearly 15 days of no sun, which is a challenge. Now then, let's get the rover to the moon 
and let's deploy it. This is a good video to show y'all. This this was this was accomplished. I was actually up there at uh, Kent, Washington, suburb of Seattle, the very first time that they successfully got the rover to unfold, and uh, and uh, that was quite an accomplishment. Only a few months before delivery, and uh, let's show let's show you that video. This is sped up, but it still shows you the unfolding. Astronauts pulled on some tapes and uh, actually got it unfolded and then connect, disconnected it from the mouth. Hopefully I can show it to you again, but I think I have to go back. Well, let me come out of here. I get blocked out by, their, by that thing. I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna show you again, because you need to see this again. Unfold the aft section, it touches the ground, then you unfold the forward section and the rover's ready for the astronauts to put equipment and thing on, everything on board and get out and start driving around. Uh, thermal control, thermal control, thermal control of the deployed lunar rolling vehicle uh, involved uh, always maintaining all, all surfaces when the astronaut touch constraints. Control and display console, as shown here on this, uh, as well as the hand controller, T-shaped hand controller, is shown in this, in this picture down here. And I'll show you a little bit of a large uh, animation of that. Uh, we had an insulated front panel with black a black backing with fluorescent uh, labeling on on the uh, on the uh, dials to help the astronauts view it. And uh, I want to show you that audio. That uh, this is an animation that my friend in Canada did for me. Uh, I will only address uh, navigation here on, on this chart because I can show you how the rover did navigation using a star, our star, the sun. Uh, if you if you park the rover down sun sun coming coming over the backside as it was parked there, you would be able to uh, maintain uh, to calculate pitch by this dial here. Then you rotated that attitude controller indicator 30, 90 degrees around and that gave you roll. Then this which you saw the uh, crewman there lift up the uh, this uh, lever here with a, a a rod and it cast a shadow. Cast a shadow on this dial that give you yaw. Uh, so you've got roll, pitch, and yaw. That's the three things you need for got for navigation, and they would feed that back into the uh, uh, ephemeris that they knew for where they were located. That allowed you to torque up the gyro and, and, a, and set your heading. They started you out at the lunar module. You notice also that the uh, on the dial there, they always wanted to have you bearing back to the lunar module as well as the distance you travel. And the range back to the back to the lunar module. Some people always ask, uh, "Would you have been able to walk back if you had a failure?" Well, I, I'm glad we didn't ever have to do that because they started going further and further away from the lunar module during the different missions. Uh, uh, it would have been uh, difficult, and uh, if you find of Apollo 14 accounts that they are actually were having heart rate increase too much by not driving. When you're riding on the rover, you got a very good performance of lowering your, your metabolic rate as well as your heart rate, and uh, that's helped them. You'll notice here also a speedometer uh, for the astronaut to tell the speed. Uh, there was no telemetry, no telemetry. This is all astronaut reading values off, this, off these dials and these, this instrumentation, as well as these are airplane gauges from that, from that epoch era, era of uh, voltage and, uh, and amperage on the batteries and the battery temperature and the motor temperature. And a lot of options for different routing of power between the batteries, shutting off a battery, which we had to do it one occasion, and uh, 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 gave, gave them a good amount of, uh, uh, of capability. And uh, a lot of training with the astronauts. 
I gave you, I'll give you on this test, test this, this uh, table over here to the left. I want to show that uh, the, the most critical item was the batteries, which had the, uh, the, the uh, uh, lim limit of 40 degrees Fahrenheit to 125. The traction drive, I'll mention here that uh, traction drive was very much over-designed with this 400. The maximum temperature on the moon was to about 270. And uh, uh, so we were well within the limits. Uh, in fact, on Apollo 15, the, the dial didn't read above, uh, below, uh, above uh, until your temperature got above 200. And uh, we had so we had off scale low on Apollo 15. Uh, mobility, we assumed that uh, the dust dust would would cover everything, and you had had to have uh, uh, survival of the system and work with uh, total dust coverage. The forward chassis electronics, we did insulate and isolate from dust. We stored the heat, generated heat in the batteries and wax tanks. Check, see, I'm doing on time. I'm about halfway there. Okay, okay. Traction drive thermal control. I mentioned to you that we only had a maximum temperature of uh, maximum temperature of 270. The each wheel had its own drive system, which consisted of a, a one quarter horsepower DC motor. That meant that a total of one horsepower for the rover on the moon. Remember, the rover only weighed 77 pounds on the moon. It carried about two and a half, three times that weight uh, of astronauts and samples and, and other equipment. So this motor drives what's called a harmonic drive here. This, this assembly is the harmonic drive that was, it has, a, has, a flex, it has a circular spline on the gears inside the wheel. And it has a flex spline here that's, that has a wave generator that generates that wave. This, this equipment was used in mining systems out west and uh, was a very good application. So you always got an 80 to one reduction. Motor speed was cut down by a factor of 80 constantly when you're driving. So it was very, uh, very ingenious. Had nitrogen gas inside for convection and a special Crytox lubricant. lubricant. This is a good picture here showing off the qual unit that, uh, that uh, showing we also had a fluid damper in here, a shock absorber on each wheel. And the steering assembly, see the, see the cross members, the steering assembly was, was attached top and bottom to the, uh, to the motor drive system, suspension system attached fittings. Forward chassis electronics thermal control. We knew this was going to be the, the heart, of, heart of the beast. And uh, what we did there was uh, we, we knew we, we could probably at the end of a driving period have the astronauts open up some covers. And I want to show you that. Here's the dust covers being asked. The astronauts had uh, uh, straps that they opened up the dust covers. This is the, this is the uh, uh, dust covers being opened, showing the uh, Second surface reflective uh, radiators. These are clean, nice and clean, okay. <laughs> we didn't have that luxury uh, once we got to the moon and got driving around. And uh, then once Gus got on there and they tried with the dust brush to brush it off, the dust brush had dust on itself and uh, we didn't accomplish it very well. We'll talk about that. But here, here the signal processing unit and the directional gyro unit were strapped, back here, collect too much were strapped into the batteries, thermal straps, special thermal straps, and uh, did have uh, wax boxes, one wax box on the, uh, attached to the signal processing units, that's the computer. And the, another other wax box was uh, over here attached to the uh, uh, drive control electronics. And uh, so this, uh, these, this system, uh, we tested it very well, and uh, uh, we're very, very hopeful that it was gonna perform beautifully, and it sort of did. Okay, it's very important 
when you're designing a system for operation on, in a remote site that's 240,000 miles away, to have good computer models so that you can rely upon them to predict based upon variety of things that you do. And uh, we certainly had that. We had uh, uh, models were developed. This is uh, the KC-135 thermal vacuum chamber that was put inside a KC-135, the vomit comet. We did reduced gravity tests, which verified the need for the fenders. Some, some folks wanted to save weight and get rid of the fenders. We, we, we were lucky in that we did this test and showed that, hey, the fenders were needed. I'll talk later on about radiator, radiator dust testing that was also testing, but it did not work on the moon. I want to point out here that uh, even uh, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, losing uh, fender extensions. This special testing was done at Houston at the Manned Spacecraft Center. That became the Johnson Space Center and uh, had a crewman go in. And uh, that, since it, we knocked off a fender extension, uh, it was knocked off on Apollo 16. So uh, uh, we did a special test out there in Houston. Have an astronaut go into the chamber B and, and we had a hot, te hot test and a cold test in thermal vacuum that uh, astronaut came in and uh, uh, deployed the, uh, the, the fender, fender fix worked excellently. Unfortunately, uh, Apollo 17, the last mission, uh, uh, when, when they're moving around on the moon, they're, they're jumping around, they're not walking on the moon. They're really propelling themselves from different sites and sliding and, and, and digging in. And uh, uh, there was a, a what happened, the same thing happened on Apollo 17 that happened on Apollo 16, that uh, the astronaut, uh, both commanders, uh, caught a hammer that was inside a pocket on the foot, on the leg of the, of the suit, on the side of the, side of the fender and popped them off. Uh, this is an example of what we call Murphy's Law. If something bad can happen, it will. And it did happen twice. Uh, I, I was very much involved in the testing of this, whole, we call it the tub, the tub testing uh, for the forward chassis put it into a, a, a heated heated cook, uh, and cool down tub and a simulated uh, 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 cool down uh, he heating of the, of the batteries and the melting of the wax boxes, which you can see the melting here on the drive control electronics, fusible mass tank, we call it the wax tank, wax box. And uh, this good correlation, this, this is what you wanna have in the testing, is testing your model and developing the correlation. This is the main test that I was involved in out there at uh, Seattle, Kent, Washington. This was where we took uh, a uh, uh, one one wheel, put it on a, uh, a, a an assembly, uh, a rolling we'll call it the rolling road with obstacles on it, which simulated one sixth gravity. All of that inside a, a vacuum chamber. I will tell one little side story here. I think I've got time for it. That uh, uh, we got it locked up. Put up the, the, the assembly went up inside this this uh, inside this vacuum chamber. We got ready to do the testing, and lo and behold, we had not provided thermal control for the motor that drove these gear system over here that made the the, the road go along. It's it, it locked up, so we 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 uh, pulled it back out, and the four, poor fellows from up in Wisconsin uh, who de developed that whole test system, uh, they had a backup motor, luckily. And we put some copper tubing in there around the motor and ran water in there. The thing we didn't do was to involve the failure review board <laughs> that weekend. We were more content, intent upon getting it fixed. So uh, they were not very happy the next Monday morning when they got to work and uh, that story told to them how, but we did fix it. And uh, it's just an example of what you do in the, in the crush of things. And uh, so I wanna show you though, uh, this, this video.
For example, driven on a rolling road fixture, the wheel assembly was tested under earth conditions. And later in test chambers, reproducing the environmental conditions of the moon. The LRV tires are made of a woven mesh of zinc-coated piano wire, to which titanium threads are riveted in a chevron pattern to keep the wheels from sinking into the soft lunar soil. Long-duration torture testing on this so-called carousel, simulating the lunar surface, verified the durability of the wheel design. The test assembly was supported by springs to relieve most of its weight, thus simulating the one-sixth gravity of the moon. Every time I look at that movie, I'm more and more amazed at uh, what we testing we were able to accomplish and uh, the, the severity of the testing. Uh, it's also important when you're making thermal models that you have good information about the material, the surface properties, optical properties of the surfaces. So we had our laboratory here at the Marshall Space Flight Center do that for us on samples that we provide to them uh, on two different reflect reflectometers, one for solar absorbance and the other for infrared emitters, which were fed into the thermal model to, uh, to, uh, uh, to gain uh, greater knowledge about predicting the temperatures. This is me talking about thermal predictions. This is me sitting at the console for the uh, for our interface uh, to the uh, we the, our our interface for the control. We took over the stations that were used for the launch of the Saturn V, and then uh, we had connection. Uh, we used a teletype for input into the computer that was downstairs, and uh, it was shared. It not only sent the TV picture, but it shared our thermal model. Now we began with a, uh, a much more complicated. This model over here showing you 181 node thermal model of all the different subsystems and uh, which you saw previously. And uh, that, and for Apollo 15, the first mission, that wasn't very use, useful. Uh, had two, two big boxes of, of cards to uh, make adjustments to punch out new cards. It was very awkward. And it, it didn't give mission control uh, the answer that. When you're working with mission control, mission support, they almost want to have you give them the answer that they kind of expect already but they want you to verify it and they want it very fast, very, very extremely fast. So uh, that was not doing the job. So I was given the task of taking that 181 node model and boiling it down to a 19 node forward chassis model. And that is indeed what I got the uh, award, the, the Silver Snoopy for doing that, doing that, that more simple, simplified uh, model of the forward chassis assembly with the batteries. Uh, and this shows you that we did indeed uh, get excellent. You know, if you look at this plot here of temperature versus time uh, for the third EVA. If we had stayed on this course here, we would have exceeded the upper operating limit of only about midway, less than halfway through the process. We showed them that uh, we could actually open up the covers during a stop, a station stop here and got good cool down. And you see a good correlation here that we uh, finally did get, but we extended the uh, limit uh, a little bit up here toward the, the, at the end of it, we made it, we made it. And, uh, but realizing that uh, uh, this is five times the original solar absorptance. Solar absorptance originally is 0.07. And by the time we got there and got to that point for the third EVA after the second cool down, uh, we were already uh, uh, had a solar absorptance of 0.35 at the best with clean. It was also important after the missions to, uh, to learn, learn from what, you, what happened. And one thing I told you that we kind of expected the temperature to uh, cool off from 80 degrees Fahrenheit starting out 
to down to about 50. That did not occur on the way to the moon. We theorized that part of it was maybe because when this when this panels were placed up uh, in the assembly, it had a protective tape on there and that tape was pulled off and that left a residue. And in fact, we took a sample of that and did prove that that was true. And we tested different, different solvents to get rid of that uh, residue. Showed that toluene was the best. Back in that day, uh, uh, toluene would not have been acceptable due to its toxicity. Uh, and, uh, but uh, it was used uh, back, in that, back, in, back on those systems. Okay, there we go. Okay, we also, after Apollo 16, uh, we uh, had a situation where we pretty much thought that cool downs were also degraded because we parked the lunar, the lunar rover too close to the lunar module and reduced its view of the radiators to space. Uh, this was kind of contrary to the desires of the crew because the crew likes to park close to the lunar module because they've got to take samples out, got to rig them up, take them up the ladder, take them inside the lunar module. They also, when they come back out after the rest period, they have to be ready to uh, load the rover up with the new, new experiments and do different things, clean bags. And uh, so uh, we did work out with them a process uh, to, uh, to uh, park a little bit further away, which the process is shown down here. Uh, crude drawings we have back in the day, these are not the graphics that you got nowadays, but it got us by that uh, you also wanted to make sure that you didn't park in the shadow of the lunar module because you would overcool. And uh, what I did was uh, I set up the assembly, this at the Space and Rocket Center, uh, where uh, we had a Saturn V laying out in the background, but here's the lunar module simulator, that exact size. So I took and placed a, a uh, battery and uh, uh, a cover system on top of a box at the right distance and uh, verified. What we did was on the second surface mirrors, this is a picture of me looking at, we put this form factometer, this is a hemisphere, a, a reflective hemisphere with gradations on it. We could calculate then based upon the area of the different reflected sur surfaces, you ca calculate what the view factors were and calculate and verify that the computer models were uh, about right. And uh, that all went into the uh, computer model. Let's talk about the two challenges now. Uh, challenge number one is coping with lunar dust. That's the, that's the main point. Uh, we had already seen on Apollo 12, mission report observed, we didn't pay that great amount of attention to it. It said that some type of overgarment for use on the lunar surface may be necessary. Remember that. Now, we had, as I told you, we had misleading Earth-based dust removal testing at higher 10 to the minus six tor pressure before Apollo 15 was also not tested at one six gravity. This, this is out of the test report that we used to, to tell us that, hey, we'd be okay that you could brush and clean the, clean the astronauts could clean off the radiators and get them back to original properties. This lower curve is uh, clean. Then the dust is applied, gives you that upper curve. And then when you dust it on the cha chamber that they, before you test in that chamber, they, you got back to nearly to the original performance. So their conclusions were that uh, uh, it's the effective method, dust, brushing the dust with effective method. And uh, uh, this was not, this was not true, did not work out on the moon as shown here, the Apollo 15, after the second EVA and the second cool down period, uh, the, uh, uh, and the brushing of the radiators, we got no cool down at all. And then Apollo 16, a similar type problem situation that uh, we uh, uh, got no cool down 
uh, during the uh, uh, second cool down period. We actually had to uh, turn, a, power, turn a battery off uh, uh, because what I told you was that Apollo 16, the astronaut uh, on the, having that uh, hammer in his suit leg actually knocked off the fender extension uh, from the right rear and that caused a rooster tailing of the dust to get back on the, on the astronauts and on the, on, the, on the radiators for us and the TV camera and, and uh, other experiments even on Apollo 17. Apollo 17, since uh, Apollo 16, there was no Apollo 18 at that time. Normally you'd have a backup crew would be a future crew. The backup crew for Apollo 17 was the Apollo 16 astronauts. And uh, John Young, since he knocked it off on Apollo 16, he was given the job of coming up with a fix. And he did a very good job of coming up with taping some maps together from the lunar, inside the lunar module and some, taking some clamps out of the lunar module and clamping on this fix onto the back, right rear back uh, fender. And it worked fairly well for the mission, for the rest of the mission. Uh, oh, I, well, additionally, additionally uh, Charlie, got Charlie Dukes give this recent response here. Apollo 16, we had brought a lot of lunar dust into the lunar module. When we got into orbit, all the dust floated all over the cabin. It was so bad, we were concerned about our in, environmental control system. So we stayed buttoned up in our suits. After we got docked, Mattingly, would not let us come into this command module. He floated over a vacuum cleaner and I closed the hatch until we got most vacuumed up. Here's what Charlie says. For long lunar stays with multiple EVAs, I believe an airlock would be mandatory. So that's my guidance from the astronauts themselves. Talking of that, before Apollo 17, a couple of nights before the launch, uh, associate my mind and I, were called down to the Cape to the crew quarters to uh, brief the astronauts on what had, what had happened to Apollo 16. The fact we had to turn off a battery and uh, about uh, trying to get a better cleaning of the radiator of the covers before we opened them. And uh, uh, it didn't strike me at the time that uh, I was in the room there with the uh, both the prime and the backup crews. These were two men that had been to the moon and the two men that were going in a couple of nights. It only struck me when I got on the airplane to come home. I says, "My gosh." This is something to tell my children about and my grandchildren in the future. Uh, uh, that really uh, came home to me. And uh, as you see here, uh, Gene Cernan, he's very dirty. And he says, I think dust is probably one of our greatest inhibitors to a nominal, nominal, nominal operation on the moon. I think we can over, overcome other physiological or physical or mechanical problems except dust. And uh, this is based very, very true because uh, this is Apollo 17 plots. And you see that he did a better job such that we did get some cooling during the second cool down period. This is the first EVA where we actually had them open the covers. I need to tell you about that. Um, we, uh, I would go up each morning to the headquarters building at Marshall Space Flight Center, and I'd get a, a, a teletype a record sent to me showing the attitudes that had been used, uh, vehicle attitudes the previous day it was in quaternions. I had to convert it. And I started seeing that they were coming out of, they were having antenna, antenna issues, communication issues, they were coming out of that barbecue at, at inappropriate times and for long periods of time, and we were going to we were going to we're most likely going to be hot. So we got that message into the folks in Houston, got them ready such that we were ready. And we got to the moon. The batteries were 95 and 110. So here you are. You're already sitting there, very very hot. Uh, and but we did say, hey guys, if you if you open the covers here during the uh, time that you're around the lunar module before you start out driving. 
if you if you open the covers, you'll get some cool down, which they got. And then we uh, uh, we did, Dean Cernan did a better job of cleaning cleaning the, the, the dust off of the covers before we opened them, as well as uh, cleaning uh, cleaning off. Uh, still a little bit less cool down during the second second cool down period, but uh, we uh, we did we did accomplish uh, uh, get that done. I showed you previously that correlation of the thermal model, which we used mission support, and the best brushing we got was still five times the original solar absorbance, which is hard to deal with, and uh, for, for which I did get the astronaut silver snoopy. After the mission was over, uh, the uh, uh, we sat there, myself and my senior mentor, we just shook our heads and we said, gosh, we really regretted having rover crews spend valuable moon exploration time in housekeeping. About that housekeeping, we must do everything possible to keep dust out of habitats and loans. Having crews and suits not be directly exposed to dust in the first place is the best way to survive adverse and hazardous lunar dust effects, as it's done on Earth with protective overgarments, like it's done in Antarctica. There, we, there have been NASA studied example suit covers. Uh, they've done even done the donning and doffing testing, which is very, very short period of time, less, less, uh, not, not significant amount of time. And here you can see some uh, evidence, uh, evidence that they've done this testing. NASA has designed and tested isolation technologies that can help ensure good astronaut health and increase Artemis science time by leaving the dust outside and the lunar of the lunar habitat and explorer lungs. Lightweight, flexible, and reusable suit covers for astronaut suits and suit joints protection with airlocks and suit ports for future Artemis EVAs, rovers, and lunar bases. This is a, my friend uh, Mark Cohen did a, a patent by, at AIM, NASA Ames back in 1989 showing the operation of that uh, suit port. Then when I went out to Houston in two, 2007 and briefed them, uh, they showed me the Chariot rover, which has a hookup of, of where suits, suit ports are involved and you actually uh, get back into this protective uh, assembly, this protective assembly. Of course, this is a fairly heavy system. Uh, you basically can also just have the suits such that you have an area where you take off those suits and then you go into an airlock before you go into the clean habitat. This is what I presented back in November at a meeting and I got some response, although not what I wanted, that uh, we're at a crossroads for Artemis. Let's not repeat the Apollo lessons. If you look at the x-axis here, you go between uh, trying to do Earth-based moon dust environment simulation and testing, which is very difficult and not reliable because of limited low gravity and low pressure testing capability, out to well, what well, let's 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 do some testing on the on the moon. Uh, okay, it's still wasted science time, but it also endangers the early exploration crews by waiting for moon dust environment environment testing. Uh, I would like to show you now uh, the. Uh, uh, what happens if you stay the course and don't do anything? That uh, you repeat, you repeat the toxic hazard and the wasted science time. This video shows you the astronauts, Apollo 16 crew, trying to clean their suits. They're using that dust brush. A single dust brush.
So you can see their frustration at trying to clean off the suits. My recommendation, our, I lead a group for the Lunar Surface Invasion Consortium for isolation technologies to, to keep the dust outside. I severely think we need, sincerely think we need to take action to implement suit covers, airlocks, and suit ports to ensure good astronaut health and maximize science time while minimizing wasteful housekeeping time. This may also require multi-step process that may also include masks with filters for use inside the habitat. Let's talk about coping with temperature extremes. That's the other, other, other thing that we didn't have to do. As you see from this plot here, uh, the, uh, from Apollo 16, uh, the uh, three EVAs were done in the morning period, morning period, where the maximum temperature was only about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Uh, Russian lunacods and Chinese rovers ex were excluded from operation near the noontime the hot temperature because of washed out lack of terrain visibility. Challenge for hot moon temperature, as I showed you before, I was very impressed that NASA had done the work on this chariot, JSC chariot, uh, to provide dust isolation and hot moon protection. So you see the astronaut, he's already got, gotten into his suit port, got his suit out, and he's uh, out exploring. <laughs> I was amazed to find a recent, a new picture here of the uh, uh, Elon Musk SpaceX uh, Starship, which shows no fewer than three of these vehicles uh, being lowered down to the lunar surface on an elevator, which uh, I wish them luck on operating that on the moon. Here's the elevator. <laughs> uh, so uh, that's, that's how you, you protect against the hot moon temperature. What can you do about the cold moon temperature? Uh, at the present time, the majority of mission architectures for exploring and conducting science on the lunar surface are limited to less than 14 Earth days due to limitations imposed by the harsh lunar night of the low temperatures and permanently shadowed regions, PSRs, at the poles. Developing systems that can survive these low temperatures and large temperature swings would greatly expand the portfolio of mission concepts possible on the lunar surface. That's what I've been uh, telling people all along. And by the way, I, I encourage y'all, if you want to, Go to uh, Eric Jones, who lives in Australia. He did the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal along with Ken Glover. And I, I've, I've contributed a lot of information to them over the years. And that's an excellent resource for people that study about uh, what happened on the moon, the videotapes and recordings and everything there. Okay, I did participate 2020, 2012 to 2013 with the NASA Night Rover competition, which was gonna look at non-nuclear non survival we, got, we could not get any teams to really participate. You can see what happens. This is Apollo uh, 17, last EVA, 
last EVA, and then what happens later uh, with, with, the, with the shutdown, the covers close, the covers close. And uh, then uh, you see without, without extra added heat, you get down very, very cold, very, very cold, no, with no survival power. We came up with uh, the calculation of what kind of power would be needed by batteries, but uh, nobody was interested in, that, in doing that. I have sent, I have been invited to go over to Russia back in 2004 to the Lunokhod facility. And I finally got to ask the, the commander, uh, General Dovgan, who actually joystick the robotic rover on the moon. I had, what, what happened? The first uh, Lunokhod one, it went for uh, uh, about, uh, oh gosh, uh, 10 or 11 lunar cycles uh, of this cold, cold temperature, hot, cold, hot, hot, and then cold temperature. But on Lunokhod 2, it only went for four. I said, what happened on Lunokhod 2? He told me that they, uh, he left one night to go home and uh, they put under mother crew on there and uh, they drove down into a crater that they, they, they panicked. They, they said, hey, this is too steep. So they tried to back up. When they backed up, they caught the uh, lip, this solar panel, the lip of it into the side of the crater and dumped uh, dust regolith in on the solar panel. Later, when they closed up the solar panel for the cool down period, for the, for the nighttime period, they dumped that, 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 all that dust, that regolith onto the radiator. And hence, later on, when they came back out and opened up, the radiator couldn't perform and they over temperature and they failed. Their motors always survived. Okay. I don't know much about what happened with the first U-2 on the moon, but it may have also been related to uh, 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 solar uh, dust getting on the radiators. You can see dust on this uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generator, which was used in the Apollo lunar surface experiment packages. But still, they, those, those units provide about 70 watts. All three of these previous systems survived using nuclear energy sources. Okay, I'll leave you all with a question here. Was uh, uh, 15 Saturn Vs were built for going to the moon. Only 12 were, 12 were used in those missions. What, uh, the question I give to the students is, what, where are the, the stages that the other three vehicles that didn't get to go to the moon? Y'all think about that for a while. See if somebody comes up with the answer. Okay. Follow 18, we had studied before it was canceled, the possibility of taking the basic rover, have the astronauts drive it, and then when they got ready to leave, to hook up a trailer, which would have a radioisotope, or RTG, RTG, a radioisotope thermoelectric generator on it, and actually be able to survive, as you can see here. External temperatures get very, very cold, but internal, with the use of an RTG, you could survive, could survive at a fairly good temperature limit. And as I told as I told you before, the Russians did successfully use nuclear isotope heater sources for several lunar cycles on their Lunokhod rover. I was amazed in 1971, the fall of 1971, after our first Apollo 15 mission. One day on my desk appeared this document that showed everything. We were in the Cold War, middle of the Cold War, and it showed me everything I wanted to know about how the Russians had used their this isotope heater system, and it had drawings and everything, full explanation. That's what got me, it started with trying to connect with those folks, and I finally got to go over there in 2004 and actually see their systems. Let's do the summary now. We're in good time, we're in good shape, okay? Lunar dust and daytime night survival and operation present considerable challenges for moon exploration. Future efforts and test verified designs are required for successful dust mitigation and lunar daytime and night survival and operation for crews and equipment. I've told you all about I challenge one. I severely, sincerely believe that isolation is the recommended approach for lunar dust mitigation. It minimizes housekeeping also. Challenge two, for longer daytime stays, 
Special protection is needed with a voidness of lunar noon. Trade study analysis using lunar rover thermal models show that 0.3 watts per pound is needed for reasonable cold nighttime survival at 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, with the time out, the people at Glenn Research Center were looking at kilopower. I don't know if kilopower program is still alive or not. Longest past success experience with use of nuclear energy systems for night power and thermal control. Mobile Russian lunar cons and stationary US LSEP survived and are operated for many lunar nights using RTGs and heater units. Chinese systems also survived. Lunar nuclear energy sources can provide lowest weight systems for required lunar nighttime survival and mobility. Non-nuclear systems require large solar panels, batteries, and energy storage capability, limiting mobility. Thermal vacuum test correlated thermal modeling is vital for moon exploration, mission support, and success. I've even tried to get NASA interested in uh, uh, surplus rovers that have museums. Uh, the qualification unit is then up there in the Smithsonian, and LRV number four has been put together now, and it's, it's in the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center, but uh, they're not going to do that. Now then, I want to show you all some recent things I've been doing here. I uh, have participated in 2019 for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. We had the Polaris people that develop uh, RTVs, to, uh, develop this uh, replica of the lunar rover and uh, use, with rubber tires. And uh, I'll ask uh, the team another, another question for y'all. Why can't you use rubber tires on the moon? And uh, 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 I try to point out to people, well, guys, that's fine doing this Apollo 11 celebration. We didn't have a rover on the moon until two years after the Apollo 11 mission. They said, yeah, shh, shh, Ron, don't, don't, don't tell us about that. As mentioned before, Ken gave in my, my bio, uh, we, we have developed a, a simulation game, which I take around to schools and let the kids joystick and drive around on the moon. I wanna show you quickly uh, this, uh, that what the students see when they, when they drive this simulation on the moon. It's very, very, very good simulation uh, shows all the shock absorbers. This is using uh, uh, data from the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter data. What I want to point out is watch the double Ackerman steering, double Ackerman steering that the rover had. That allowed you to, uh, to turn the vehicle within, within one vehicle length. So now then, I've pretty much finished and I want to see if we have some questions. Let's use the TV camera. Let's see if there's a good question out there. Uh, searching, searching. And, oh, oh, there's a good question. That's it for me. Thank you, Ken. Thank, thank you, Ron. This is so cool, so exciting. It's amazing. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, so many things here. So this is a great opportunity for our folks to ask questions or answer questions. <laughs> you, you throw out three uh, quizzes. Uh, I see uh, Kelly seems to has a mic also. So let me turn the mic to you, Kelly. Kelly, go ahead. And Mike. You have to unmute. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. All right. Well, I guess I was just going to posit an answer to your um, question about the tires being rubber and why they wouldn't be practical on the moon. 
Um, my guess is just that they're very temperature sensitive, rubber is, and wouldn't survive for very long um, exposed to those extremes. That's, that's part of the answer, but the real answer is pressurized systems like that, rubber tires with pressures like uh, are a danger to the crew. Any puncture would, would, could allow an explosion, a mini explosion there, and anything that damages the suit, boy, you're really up a river if you damage that suit. Yeah, that's so fascinating. That's a good question. It's a good question. Can you answer the question about the three Saturn Vs that didn't get to go to the moon? Yeah, anybody, you can if we can answer the question, please. I think uh, it was budget cuts. The Samuel. Yeah, I think it was budget cuts. They just simply decided that uh, that they had enough missions going and. Uh, they didn't have a need to go much further than just simply uh, go to the moon a few times and beat the Russians. Well, you're partly right there in that uh, indeed uh, we had get special legislation or special support from uh, certain congressmen to even do the Apollo 15, 16, and 17. After the Apollo 13 explosion uh, hazard, uh, what happened on it, there were certainly people that said, hey, it's not worth it anymore. But thankfully we got to, Apollo 15, 16, and 17, even on Apollo 17, got to have a real geologist, Jack Schmidt, to go on that mission and collect soil, uh, soil samples. Uh, so uh, that's partially answered. Uh, the, fifth, the, 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 three other the three other Saturn V vehicles, including the uh, lunar module and all those pieces, were actually built, okay? It's just that they weren't flown. And that was the question was, where are those stages now? Uh, yeah, one, uh, is in, one is in JSC, one is Marshall, and the third one was used for Skylab. Okay, part one again, first, part, everybody always says Marshall. Uh, out at the Spaces Rocket Center here in Huntsville, they did transport the, what was called the dynamic test vehicle uh, that I've actually seen inside the vehicle, the, the te dynamic test stand out there at Marshall. They transported out to the Space and Rocket Center here out west part of town. And that's the dynamic test vehicle. That was not a flight vehicle. Uh, you're partially right that Johnson Space Center and their uh, visitor center, they do have uh, one of the one of the uh, three Saturn V vehicles <laughs> laying on the ground. Okay, the other, the second one is down at the Kennedy Space Center. Okay, but where is that third one? Where is that third one? At the Smithsonian, isn't it? No, not at Smithsonian. It, it's gonna it's gonna amaze you when you hear the answer. Are you talking about a Skylab one? Pardon? Are you talking oh, about Skylab? I think I heard the answer there. Yeah, Skylab. Uh, it was a Skylab launch vehicle where they take the third stage, took all the equipment outside, uh, the propellant and everything, <laughs> and flew a, three missions up to Skylab uh, uh, in 1973 timeframe. And uh, so, uh, but interesting enough, of those two vehicles that are, uh, so, so the answer is the two booster stages, the first and second stages are in the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, someone has now gone and found those engines and, and, and taken them up out of the water. And uh, the third stage, I think, used to down, be down at Michoud uh, Test Facility or somewhere in Mississippi. Uh, it may still be there, the, uh, the third stage of the Saturn V. So you got the, got the answer. Skylab was the answer for the third one. I have another question, if possible. Okay, yes, sir. Uh, I've been doing some research on this stuff. Has there been, have your, has your team done any research on static electricity and dust mitigation? Because it seems like static electricity is a great way to collect dust. And that's probably 
why they keep brushing on their spacesuits. And that dust doesn't go very far because it's like static. Well, that may very well be true, but I always point out to the people that talk about that, what are you going to do with it? You got a wand, electrostatic wand, you're going to wipe it over. How are you going to clean it? You know, and <laughs> it all gets back to let's, 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 let's attack this problem at the highest level, at the first level. Let's isolate the astronauts from ever having to do that at all. You have a cover, like uh, if you've seen what they've done in Antarctica, they have covers on them. Or look at Chernobyl. When they had Chernobyl, and they, unfortunately a lot of people died, but a lot of others did limited exploration in there, uh, in, the, in the nuclear facility that failed. And uh, they had covers on them. And uh, I think that's the answer. But uh, I see a lot, of, a lot of studies people are doing about electrostatics and all. Uh, you just can't, I don't honestly believe you could simulate that here on the earth adequately compared to the pressure difference, the great, great difference between what you could do on, on earth testing versus what, uh, what's needed for the moon, 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 moon activities. Well, do you happen to Thank know, you. excuse Pardon? me, do you happen to know what the Polaris mock-up costs? Pardon? Do you happen to know roughly what the Polaris mock-up costs? No, they, they donated, they donated it to, uh, to uh, Space and Rocket Center. It's, it's out there now on display. And as you can see here, and uh, uh, they've driven it in parades. They actually took it down to Talladega Raceway and took it around the course uh, back uh, uh, at that time period uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, so, uh, but I don't know the cost. Uh, I, and I don't, I think I never, never heard it. I never heard what the cost was. It was, it, uh, they certainly uh, put a lot of work in on it. And uh, uh, they, uh, they used parts out of, if you can see that, if you can tell them that, that picture there, they used parts out of many, many different vehicles to, uh, to pull this off and to get it done. And I contributed, uh, I found for the high gain antenna, I found an umbrella frame for an umbrella that had the exact number of spokes, had 12 spokes. So we used that umbrella inverted and put a wire mesh up here to simulate the high gain antenna. And uh, one other detail. Notice, notice on this vehicle, the front of the TV camera, it has that silver looking uh, shade, that sunshade. That was not on Apollo 15. Believe it or not, went to the moon, had glare because they didn't have that sunshade on. So they put the sunshade on for Apollo 16 and 17 and it worked very well. You'll also notice in driving, they would turn the TV camera around so that it faced the astronauts so they wouldn't get dust thrown up, try to get dust. That didn't help though on Apollo 16 and 17, when the dust was coming from the right rear fender extension being gone, and it was being rooster tailed up, no matter where you put the TV camera. Uh, Mr. Green, go ahead. Christopher. Oh, thank you. I was going to uh, respond uh, incorrectly about the uh, uh, Saturn V at the uh, Space and Rocket Center. <laughs> yep, yep. They've also got a model out there on by the highway, but the, by the, that's just a model. I've seen it put together. It's clamshell. It's got two halves to it, and people think that that's that's a uh, you couldn't uh, have the weight supported to have a real vehicle put vertically out there. And uh, uh, luckily, we've not had any bad windstorms to blow it over <laughs> across our fingers. All right, uh, next, Neil, Mr. Wolf. 
Uh, Neil, go ahead. I see you are unmuted. Yeah, me too. Neil? Uh, okay, we cannot he hear you. So that, let's move to uh, Colonel Shortage first. And then the next, back to Neil. Uh, Colonel Shortage, go ahead. Okay, now can you hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you very much for your presentation. I'm uh, most concerned about uh, the dust accumulation and adherence to radiator surfaces on, on the moon. And I'm wondering, I do believe that electrostatic uh, can, can serve to ensure adherence of dust to surfaces in general. But I clean my laptop with a, uh, a little feather duster that becomes electrostatically charged very easily. And you can pull some of the dust off. And I'm wondering, uh, there are materials that can become more electrostatically charged than others. And if it, they were used, could they potentially be used as cleaners of surfaces. But I, I point you back to that video showing them trying to clean the suits. The suits have so many different areas and nicks and crannies and around about, I don't know how you go about trying to clean. And also- Again, I, I'm talking, I'm, I'm concerned about radiator surfaces, which so generally are flat. Radiators, yes. Uh, uh, the uh, basic problem you'll have now is with robotic rovers that they're planning to send up there, you don't have the astronauts there to try to brush off the dust or to do any of this cleaning like this. So what are you gonna do about them? Uh, I well, don't know the answer. Uh, yeah, I think certainly if we're talking about remote, uh, then that eliminates that possibility for the most part. Right. Uh, but given that we have, uh, you know, sustenance of, you know, we have crude missions, which can do some cleanup perhaps, of critical equipment, particularly ones that require radiation uh, of heat into, uh, into space. And uh, getting dust off of those could be very, very uh, positive uh, for lengthening and the efficiency of those, those systems. So can you comment? Well, I would comment to you, had we had more power, uh, uh, more weight available to us. Uh, we were looking at ammonia boilers at, back at that time. And uh, we just didn't have the weight to do that. Uh, and uh, weight is going to drive you on a lot of the different systems. Uh, so we would have, but hopefully, we, we wanted to have a system that was totally locked up, didn't involve the astronauts to have to do anything. We didn't get that. We had to have them spend valuable time trying to clean and uh, not being able to, they were frustrated too, that uh, we were continually telling them, hey, uh, clean. We were not the only ones. We have radiator on top of the TV camera. Uh, there was another experiment in the back end of Apollo 17 called the Surface Electrical Properties Experiment. Uh, 
uh, which got the dust dumped on it and it failed. It got too hot. So uh, I, I just uh, I just still caution people that uh, don't think that you think you're going to do everything here and test it here on earth. And we did that before, been there, done that, and it didn't work. And that's all I can say about that. Okay, so uh, Neil, try again. See if your mic works or not. No? Okay, Neil said if it still doesn't work, we'll just read his question. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's so a bunch said, of them in the chat. Can you see the Q&A box? I can read it, but you can, you can read it too. Uh, no? Which one says? Q&A, Neil. Neil. Neil Wolf, still not audible. Neil, try to test your mic. So would, would there be scientific, scientific or engineering value in bringing parts of an LRV or a complete one back to Earth for lab analysis? We know Artemis isn't slate, slated for rover reclamation missions, but wouldn't there be a lot of knowledge to be gained by examining the LRV in the lab back on Earth? I've had that proposed to me before. There was, during the Google X Prize, I think there was a company that wanted, a company in Germany or somewhere, uh, that wanted to go back and land. And the problem you got is there are historical people that say, hands off. This is, this is a hand circumstance. I would point out that the rovers that are up there on the moon, the three of them were left on the moon. Okay. Uh, people people ask, ask me, the other question is, why didn't you bring them back? we didn't have the weight capability to bring them back is the answer, quick answer. But those three that were left there on the moon, they've been through several hundred, upwards of 600 thermal cycles of plus or minus 280 to 300 Fahrenheit, 600 times. I have no doubt that there are melted parts on there, that there are several things that uh, uh, I don't think you would get a whole lot of information out of going and visiting them. Uh, you need to go to new places on the moon. We've been to certain sites. We did expand and go to new places. The poles have their own and interesting uh, uh, aspects to them. Uh, perhaps you can go to, to a, a place on the pole that uh, has constant sunlight for a, a greater amount of time period, a very, very limited uh, uh, cold, cool down time. But uh, that limits you that, that that system only works down there at the poles. I think uh, there's other information to be found in other sites uh, that, uh, have, uh, the moon has been uh, very little explored up to now. Yeah, actually, I was about to ask if if we go back there, can we still ride on those rover? Probably not. <laughs> That's the next part. Yeah, they, 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 even some astronauts have said, "Well, all you got to do is you go back up there and you put a battery, new batteries in." I've told you how things are going to be melted and exposed for those okay. six hundred different uh, cycles, the hotter, hot, cold, hot, cold cycles. Also, your batteries here on the earth in your car, they have guides in there. They have the capability that you can take the old battery out, put the new battery in. That's not true on the rover. Uh, although I would say you can hope maybe on the lunar communication relay unit, that was the unit up in the front end that processed all the, uh, the audio and the, the TV picture. That unit 
had actually had a, a battery that you could pull out and put back in. Okay. Uh, in fact, on Apollo 16, we ran hot because we provided all the TV picture, the power for all the TV pictures. That allowed them not to be, not to have to replace that battery each time they went out after they had their rest period and their eating period and sleeping. Uh, they brought a new battery out and put it into the, the communication unit. Uh, we didn't have to do that on Apollo 16. After we got hot on Apollo 16, we backed away from that and uh, then co combined that with the fact that we landed hot, as I told y'all, 95 and 110, uh, we, we abandoned that effort to uh, power the uh, communication unit and they had to do the batteries and place them. So that unit had guides in there, uh, but I think everything's pretty well melted or, or jammed up. And uh, uh, there are some also other theories here that there's indications that every time the sun rises, it stirs up dust. Uh, in, in a lot like an explosion. Uh, I, there, there is some good evidence that that, that, that occurs. So uh, we probably covered everything even more with dust uh, after we left, but not worth uh, a separate mission to go back and do that. Uh, I go back to those rovers, I don't believe. Uh, Brent, Brent asked if the uh, recording will be posted on YouTube. Yes, the answer is yes. But oh, if yes. you still want to, Say something. Go ahead. Oh uh, no, uh, th that was it. Uh, it's because uh, I uh, I kind of overslept and I missed the first half of the talk, and so I'm glad it's going to be on YouTube. Thank you. Yeah, thanks to thanks to Mr. Creo. Well, well, thank you very much. Uh, you're very welcome. Uh, I uh, uh, no, I, no. I mean, thank you for your permission permission for the recording. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, definitely, definitely. Uh, there's no no secrets here. And, uh, and Samuel has a question. My, Samuel, go ahead. My frustration is, please, everyone, capitalize the M in moon. It is our moon. NASA's guidance is to capitalize it. Okay. And uh, I see so many times that people don't capitalize moon. It is our moon. That is the name of it. It's the moon. Uh, and uh, uh, they also uh, uh, I lost the thought there, but. Uh, that was one thing uh, I was going to tell y'all. Uh, oh, don't worry. Uh, oh, the other thing, other thing, other thing, other thing Ken, I yes. find oftentimes uh, people propagate wrong information. So I'm trying to tell y'all what I believe is the truth. Okay. There are others that put out, uh, and it's, I'll give you an example. Uh, Apollo 15, back in 1971, the, the United States Postal Service put out a dual stamp. The, st the postage back then was eight cents, by the way, <laughs> eight cents. So they put out a dual, dual stamp, one, one side showing the rover, other side showing the moon. Okay, but they did what's called a first day of issue envelope. On that first day of issue envelope, they put a picture of the 1G trainer. I didn't talk to y'all about the 1G trainer, but mm -hmm. none of the kids. We did provide for the astronauts a 1G trainer that gave them all the interfaces that they needed, but it was powered by different drive systems and it had heat exchangers up in the front section. It didn't have radiators, okay. But that first day of issue stamp cover envelope had the wrong picture on it. <laughs> it had the good stamps, but the wrong picture of a, astro of a rover driving on the moon. Uh, I could not believe that when I saw it. Why didn't, where was this information not available to them? There was press release that showed you everything about it. Uh, I, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, you're right. And uh, 
that's exactly what the AIWA want to do to provide the, the correct information as a professional society. And we highly support you. And uh, actually a couple of times, our AIWA members point out some, you know, things like you mentioned. For example, somebody posts uh, a picture of the first step on the moon. And then they say it's Neil Armstrong, but <laughs> it was actually Buzz, Buzz was. step, yeah. And also the, uh, post a picture of the uh, um, the, the the color color uh, picture of uh, uh, astronaut coming of the uh, lunar module or Apollo eleven. And somebody said it's Neil Armstrong, but you know we have expert from Air Force and NASA. They said mm -hmm. it cannot be. It's black and white. It must be black and white for Neil Armstrong. So you have right. to let people know. Uh, the correct information. And early this year, we have a, a talk by a JPL speaker uh, to counter the misinformation uh, in the space news. It's very important. Well, I see though, even here at the Marshall Space Flight Center, they put out a document about the rover and it has a, a drawing in there that shows the uh, TV camera on the left side in front of the driver and the antenna, high gain antenna on the right side. That was abandoned early on because the TV camera being in front of the driver blocked his view, okay? He had wow. less, less blockage when you put the antenna over there and you move the camera over to the right side. I will tell you one other little side story here. Uh, told here that uh, by Charlie Duke that uh, he asked John Young one time, he says, you gonna let me drive this thing? John said, I am the commander. In other words, end of discussion. No, he was going to drive the rover. Uh, only the drivers on the left side, the, the, the commanders, drove the rovers on the moon. Yeah, very interesting. In fact, in fact the hand controller was biased around, turned a little bit to, to, to them. By the way, that whole hand controller, that was an example of not listening to the astronauts to what their needs. They, we, we put through a lot of different designs until we came up with that T-shape that fit the glove. So the glove was there and the, by the way, when the astronauts are driving, all the vibrations that he's getting really feed back through that hand controller. So they had a capability in the hand controller that you could put it forward into the detent and drive without having it like a constant. Mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, so a lot of extra features I didn't go into for y'all and uh, we could probably do them another time or- uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, am, I am writing a book and uh, someday I'll publish it I've participated in about three other books. Uh, unfortunately, one of those books, back to this subject, the uh, author wouldn't let me look at the pictures and he put the wrong traction drive system in. He put the one for the 1G trainer in his book and called it the one for the rover. So <laughs> what, what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, they need you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so next Samuel, go ahead. And then George. Okay. Hi, uh, I just have a classic question, and I was wondering about this with a lot of the Mars rovers. Why don't they have kind of some kind of windshield wiper type system on those solar panels and radiators? Something to get the, the dust off. Well, I believe that the uh, that, that that might be useful. Although, once again, uh, and maybe for the robotic rovers, you got to have something like that. But I think making the, the making the radiators more vertical and vibrating them is another option for getting the dust off. Maybe more effective than the wipers. 
Because remember, the wipers, they're going to collect dust themselves. And then you're going to have streaking like you have in your car <laughs> on, on a cold winter day. Okay. Uh, George, go ahead. Hi, Ron. I'm curious. Oh. Actually, I have two questions. Um, one is, is it possible to get access to the Rova if someone wants to play it? Um, and uh, you know, is there is there a somewhere where you make that available, or or is somebody making you know could make it available through some channel? Uh, I haven't done that yet. Uh, honestly, back during this whole pandemic, I haven't really gone back and done some of the improvements I wanted to make on it. But uh, it is uh, uh, more a question of of ownership and plagiarism and uh, fear I have that uh, it's misused or marketed. I, I have an example already of somebody that's done that to me. And uh, uh, not that I want to make a lot of money off of it, I don't, but I don't want them to make money off of it. I, I think you should make money off of it. Um, but uh, in any case, um, when I, I think it's an it's a interesting thing and a lot of people are really interested these days in you know, um, reasonably accurate simulations that they can play. And the moon is getting more and more popular, especially with Artemis starting to launch soon. So encourage you to go down that path. Um, okay. May I ask a second question? Sure. Um, a lot of talk on these days about in-situ resource utilization. It occurred to me, um, could you use the regolith itself as a heat sink? In other words, take some of it, you know, crudely speaking, take some of it, pile it into a box on wherever it is, let it heat up, and then when you want to get rid of the heat, you just dump it, and and so you're you're you're, you're you know because you can't carry you know um, stuff up there that you would you know stream away or your wax boxes for example which you know heat up and then you you know you, you use that as a heat sink, but could you use the like, regolith itself as a heat sink? Perhaps, uh, but. Uh... I don't know about doing experiments like that. Like I said, I, I, I would question trying to simulate that here on Earth once again. They have a lot of lunar simulants. Uh, uh, they are pretty uh, restrictive about uh, samples, although, gosh, they sent out several hundred samples from Apollo 11 after the lunar landing, first lunar landing, and have no record as to what was done with those. They tried to call them back, but uh, they were very small, minuscule little samples, but uh, they, uh, uh, they have simulants, uh, a little battle between people developing simulants. Uh, so, uh, and you have the incapability of actually using real soil that's returned from the moon. I don't know how much different the soil is from the different sites that we've collected. Or uh, I believe that we got some of the Russian samples too. Don't know about the Chinese. Um, yeah, just uh, uh, George asked about the physical rover. Actually, how about the simulator? Is that uh, something uh, uh, that the students can access on, online uh, or it has to be uh, physically? I will, invest, I will investigate that, that aspect of it. Right now, I take, along, I take my computer, my laptop out and another monitor, bigger monitor and that's what you see in these pictures, what you can see that uh, 
she's running off, there's my laptop, and there she's running off a bigger monitor. Uh, and uh, same thing for this young little boy here that uh, is driving it. And uh, or, or maybe, maybe when you come here to give the next talk, and uh, you can have, have a demo <laughs> for the students as well. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. They, they generally it. enjoy it. Uh, they, uh, uh, they, uh, they get a kick out of it. Uh, you can actually see this little boy, he's got an overlay. We, we, we had another fellow 3D print a, a model of the T-shaped hand controller. You could just see that he's got a little hand on that T-shaped hand controller. She's using the basic uh, 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 joystick. 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 But he's got a, a model, a 3D printed overlay on top of that. Uh, on top of that. Wow. On top of that. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we've got that capability too, and uh, so they can feel like it's a real thing. Uh, somebody asked you asked earlier, maybe uh, Ken, about yeah. uh, sounds. We probably need to add sounds. Although, as I've said, there's no there's no sound on the moon. All you ever get is the astronauts. And you hear this ding every now and yeah. then. That was, that was their uh, that was the verification that their system's still alive. <laughs> we need to add uh, add a sound special effect. Yeah, yeah. Put some kind oh, of wine in there. For... In Hollywood here, they're pretty good in this. Oh yeah. Well, okay. I was amazed at, that my friend uh, uh, that did. Uh, you see behind me the poster that my friend in Canada did. And we gave it to a lot of the students when we had the used to be called the moon buggy race out here. We now call it the human exploration rover challenge. Wow. They, everybody's got to change names. I liked the moon buggy race. Yeah, it's, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but somebody didn't like moon buggy, which it, it is the moon buggy. It is. And, uh, uh, and uh, okay. it's like uh, a golf cart on the moon. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, Colonel Shortest has another question. Colonel, go ahead. Uh, yes. Uh, do you happen to know the density of uh, lunar regular and the uh, characteristics of dust that had accumulated on things? The we, we generally can, speaking, the particle size. We, and, we can get uh, that information for you. I'll, I'll look it up and I'll send it to Ken. And we'll, we'll, we'll probably try to post it here. There's a, there is definite information about that. And I think there's a little variation between the different sites. But uh, of course, the big question is, uh, what's it going to be that like down at the poles, down at the South Pole? And they're dedicating a lot of missions here going to the South Pole. Uh, uh, some of those won't, until we get crews up there, I don't know how we'll return those samples from, from the moon. But, Was uh, there a variation? I, I don't know. I don't know. From the, the uh, sites where they were meant, they were measured during Apollo. So there was go back to Earth and measure. Although there are some questions about how pristine those those, those samples were, uh, because uh, of exposure, the, the the containers had seals that were compromised by the dust itself. Uh, but there are some, some some samples that have never been opened, and uh, they're proposing to open them up now. Uh, and there's also a big big information a debate here about the consistency as you go down deeper into the moon. Uh, well, again, I'm concerned predominantly about the dust. About so the dust, the dust is not necessarily regular, but uh, it's the fines, if you will, from the surface, right. which are being you know, lofted uh, by activity uh, on, on the moon. 
And uh, it's though the characteristics of that dust that I'm mostly concerned about or would like to learn more about. Okay. Well, we could we can provide you with some of that information. I'll, I'll, I'll look I'll look up I'll be my action item to, to look that up for you and uh, and uh, I'm sure there are a lot of different documents on that. <laughs> I've sent it to you probably be a, a, a list of documents to look at. Well, I, I don't need to. If you have just uh, uh, kind of a bibliography, a list of references uh, that I can go to, that would be very useful. Right. Right. I think I've got that somewhere here. Yep. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. It's been, uh, great. It's been great to talk to you all. I could keep going. I don't know what your time limit is. Uh, but... Yeah, yeah. You have more time? It's okay to yeah, go? I'm, 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 I'm here. Uh, and, uh, I, I took a nap this afternoon. I've seen your nap. Yeah, I'm so excited. excited. I could not sleep. It's very exciting. Um, Brian has a question about posting the the uh, Europa, uh, uh game platform. But before he mentioned, it, I think the the, the Rover is better with with Mr. Creel demo with the three D T shape uh, 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 control, and that would be better. But anyway, Brian, go ahead. Oh, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Um, Hi, uh, Ron. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the PC uh, game store uh, called Steam. Uh, well, I was just I was just thinking uh, if if you were looking for somewhere to release uh, the Lurova uh, software, uh, you, you might want to look into it. Uh, one of my friends released uh, uh, like a like a a game on uh, Steam recently, and uh, uh, just just if you haven't heard of it, that might be something for you to look into because. Uh, I think he said they take like a decent cut, like maybe like close to 30%, I think he said, might have said, but it has like a digital rights uh, management like built in somehow. That, that's what he was told. Okay. Well, that'd be good if uh, uh, you got my uh, email address there on this chart here. It's roving.ron at gmail.com. You can send me that information if, if you would. And uh, uh, we can probably think about something there. Uh, uh, okay, sure. Yeah. Now, in my in the uh, you see up there in the upper right, I actually have the thermal model. The thermal model is embedded in there too, and you can actually interrogate uh, batteries or uh, wheels. Uh, keep hitting it to the. There we go. You can interrogate uh, to get temperatures too. So the thermal model is embedded in that model. I should tell y'all that I went to Poland. There's a group over there called Knights of Unity. This is done. This is done in Unity. Uh, simulation and uh, so they did some work for me uh, back a couple of years ago and uh, but uh, gosh with the pandemic going on I haven't done anything on it here since uh, we got into this whole mess. Yeah we need a special sound effect effect yeah like uh, actual actual sound. <laughs> yeah oh, yeah but, but what you, you mentioned what you see, we do have five different camera views on that uh, on that system. Uh, this is the overhead from the back. You can look backwards. You can look side view, uh, and uh, uh, you could take the astronauts view. Uh, so uh, they did a lot of good work for me, and uh, wasn't that expensive, really? Yeah, I heard. 
some people in Poland were very interested in, in uh, I think they built a theme park or something like that, like that over there. Huh. I don't know if it's the same group of people. Well, these are called the Knights of Unity. I see. That's K-N-I-G-H-T, knight, that kind <laughs> yeah. of knight, not the, the, the other knight. Yeah, the, the uh, King Arthur knight. King Arthur knight, yes, yes. <laughs> Round table knight. Uh, uh, when you mentioned the slide, actually, I saw on slide 13, number 13 of your slide. 13? Your city next, next to a monitor control console. Uh, let me skip that nine, 10, 11. Yes, yes, yes. That, 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 uh, that was a, a friend of mine there at Marshall who uh, works in the computer lab. He embedded our 19 node model into the same software that drove, that, that, that fed, they, they received the TV picture from Houston. And then uh, uh, he fed that in, the, I don't know how he did it. It's amazing he did it, uh, but, uh, we could at least, now we had, did have a separate computer display for the thermal model that we ran, uh, trying to let Houston know uh, these, these type plots over here. That Houston wanted to know, hey, what if I do this? Uh, what's gonna happen? And uh, they uh, went, none of y'all have ever, unless, unless some of y'all have been involved with the mission support with, with three astronauts up there, 240,000 miles away, uh, they want accuracy uh, immediately, accuracy immediately. Uh, that's that's what they want, and uh, you got to get used to that. Uh, Apollo 15, we did not have that. Uh, gosh, I remember lugging those two boxes of cards down there to punch key punch. None of y'all had to do key punching, uh, punching out the, uh, 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 the systems. And also, we were not just beginning to get into tapes, and uh, uh, we also had to battle. We had to battle Nastrian. Our SENDA uh, program called System Improved Numerical Differencing Analyzer had to battle with NASTRAN and the NASTRAN took up most of the time. But during the missions, we, we shut NASTRAN down. Uh, forget about it, guys, uh, we have a priority. And, uh, but even at that, it was awkward to run that big. It was a UNIVAC 1108. And uh, that was the best computer we had at the time. And uh, I did this, this was done on a smaller uh, CDC machine downstairs, different, different supply system. Done with the teletype, teletype, teletype input. See these gauges here? Those are Saturn V gauges. And strip chart, here's a strip chart over here. That's from Saturn V launch. Of course, this picture was made for Apollo 17. But we did occupy that that actual area there. They, they left after Apollo Saturn V was gone and the mission was over. Well, their part of the mission was over. We came in and took over. And uh, it was quite an experience. It was an adventure. So the, the screen there, uh, the astron astronaut there, yes, is, yes. is the live video? Yes, that's live. That was, that's live, that's live wow. TV picture. Live TV picture on the moon. Yep. Thank you. See that? Apollo yep. 17? Uh, yeah, Apollo 17, right. Yep, yep. Wow. Yep. And... Uh, uh, you could switch out, you could switch between our model temperatures like the uh, plot over here versus, uh, uh, I could show you, all maybe I'll send that to y'all, show y'all a picture of the, uh, of the TV picture that uh, it could be substitute, 
you can switch back and forth between the live TV picture and the uh, model temperatures predictions. Uh, yeah, this is so, so cool. Yep. But, yep. Yeah. I had black hair back then, or dark hair. <laughs> it's all silver now. What there is, what there is of it. You're handsome. Very handsome. Uh, mustachioed. Mustachioed. Uh, Colonel Schultes has another question. Uh, go ahead. Uh, yes, Ron. Can you can you say anything about the differences between the dust on the moon versus the dust on Mars? I'm not the I'm not the one to comment on that. Uh, uh, I, I do know it's interesting. I tell you a little bit. Uh, I am very interested that uh, you'll notice that the Spirit and Opportunity had solar panels. Okay. Right. They did not have RTGs, and they ran into the fact that storm storms would blow up on the moon, on Mars, on Mars, on Mars storms would come up and covered their uh, one of them. One of their they went they went hot, super hot, and they had to shut down on one of those either Spirit or Opportunity, and then they got lucky. Another storm came up and blew the soil off. But that told them right then that hey, they needed a different system. So they went over to this, what's called multi-mission radioisotope thermoelectric generator. And that uses a considerable amount of, of plutonium. We use plutonium-238. And uh, I think there's, I've been told here that there's not a whole lot of that still available. But, uh, uh, and I've, I've also seen maybe they might start producing it again. At the, uh, uh, they are. That, so uh, uh, that, that has some hope here. Uh, it has concerns uh, ever since Cassini, which went to what, Saturn? Uh, Cassini and the protests and the, the dangers involved uh, as to what happens if they launch, have a launch failure. Uh, they have been kind of against uh, having nuclear uh, systems. Although ironically, they did launch those uh, two vehicles up to Mars, uh, Curiosity and Perseverance. Uh, and uh, so, uh, well, let me put your mind at ease. Yep. We are producing plutonium-238 again oh. in the United States. And uh, by the way, both Spirit and Opportunity, although they were uh, primary power supply was solar, mm -hmm. there were small one-watt lightweight radioisotopic heater units in the warm electronic box to keep the battery and the electronics warm which probably served to extend the life of those uh, spacecraft. Yes, exactly, exactly. But they did make a, a, a main decision to uh, not pursue those uh, with, uh, of course, uh, the solar rays, that the, the, the perseverance are much larger. They would have had to have really large solar rays. Oh, it, they needed 24-7 operation, and they yep. did not want to have Right. The likelihood of, of losing, you know, a rover uh, during the course of a Mars uh, seasonal winter. Right. Right. Yep. Uh, look, looks like Mark. I'm sorry, Mike, as a command. Mike, go ahead. Mike. I saw you have a... Uh... Oh, I was looking for the unmute button. Oh yeah, just, just made a comment. If the plutonium is so dangerous, it seems to be advisable to get rid of it as fast as possible. 
and say, send it to Mars. <laughs> so, so when I hear when I hear various groups talk about, oh, if you know, vehicle blows up or anything like that, we're all going to die. Well, it seems like we should just get rid of it. <laughs> Same thing on the space. But yeah, the, the containers for these things are designed, I think they have three or four layers in the, in the design of the containers to sustain, to, uh, to survive during even the worst possible kind of launch accident. So, uh, right. Yeah. Right. But that whole Cassini protesting did have an impact, I think, politically on oh, yeah. Yeah. certain congressmen. You got to work through the congressmen. <laughs> uh, if I might comment on that, Cassini had a, uh, uh, a flyby of Earth with the potential of a high-speed uh, re-entry during that Earth gravity assist. And that's what Glean so much concern from, uh, I'll call them the anti uh, but the probability was made so low by the jet propulsion laboratory by ratcheting in slowly to get the right uh, window of the flyby that it was less than 10 to the minus seven. There's a probability for that to occur, but should it have occurred, you were effectively coming in at Mach 58, which was uh, extremely difficult to survive. Uh, and there was, it's not a design basis accident, by the way. So the various containment barriers that are there may or may not have survived. We don't even have material property data uh, at, at the kind of temperatures and speeds that were, would be, have been involved for a, an inadvertent re-entry during a Cassini flyby of Earth. But the, the decision makers decided that on a risk basis, it was worth going forward, and we did. That's good comments. Do y'all know where the Apollo 13 uh, uh, radioactive material was deposited back on Earth? Not Atlanta. Uh, yes. Yes, it's at the bottom of the Tonga Trench in the South Pacific. Yes. And yes. it survived the entry through the Earth's atmosphere without any release. But and no one has tried to recover it since then, according to what I know. But the people I've spoken to say basically it's a source now for a new coral reef at, at the deep bottom of the ocean. Yep. And, and what's so just really makes me very irritated to people like this. So the so they say that that the people NASA might make a mistake to get the vehicle, get Cassini off by 500 miles or so in towards our direction. These are the same people who got Voyager within 60 miles of where they wanted to be at Neptune. So I don't think the 500 mile thing is going to be anything to worry about. The JPL folks are amazing what they've done uh, of all the landings of the vehicles on Mars. Oh, yeah. some, bouncing, some bouncing, some parachuting, some having thrusters for the final phase. Uh, it's amazing uh, what they've done. And it, it was just beautiful to see the video of the, of the sky crane from the latest from Curiosity. Yep. 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 I hope they can solve this problem on the web telescope uh, or the communication issue. Uh, get it up there. Uh, uh, it's been a long time since Hubble went up. 
and Hobo, you know, they had to fix it. They had to fix it. It was not, not uh, kosher to begin with. There, there's a really good book out on that called The Hubble Wars. And it goes into a lot of, it's written by the guy who was sort of the, he was a, a, a physicist who was also uh, in the uh, uh, Hubble organization, uh, the, the, the outreach person to, to other scientists who were helping with the plan thing and so on. And it's a fascinating look at both the problem that we developed, how it got through all of our testing, and then, then all the politics you had to deal with when dealing with various businesses as to what pictures they might release early on to show people what the Hubble could actually do. And each physicist had one had an object they didn't want anyone else to see, so they said, "No, no, don't think, don't release anything of M fifty one or or M thirty one." And and one one guy actually said, "If you if you release pictures of this of this object of mine, I will kill you." Mm, mm. And fi finally, got all of, all the early scientists on board. Uh, they agreed on on allowing a picture of a star to be released early on. But uh, finally, they, they they got some of the good stuff early on in his first public release to show what this thing could really do. Was that example of they were rushed to finish the grinding of the mirror and didn't go far enough? Or I never got the story. <laughs> I, I I believe that this is one of these great stories. You just you just hear and, and slap your hand on your forehead. You just never, you, you just would never think of something like that. I think it was a coat of paint on mm -hmm. one of the instruments that was used to measure the, the curve of the, of the mirror. And that extra, maybe a half millimeter or quarter millimeter of layer of paint offset the, the design of the mirror, the curve of the mirror. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Well, they fixed it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And they fixed the, fixed the most recent problem. They had a problem that shut down. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, and also the book couple of words, the guy, who, I really recommend getting it. Uh, the, the author mentioned that the Hubble Space Telescope is the most important scientific instrument since Galileo's telescope. Oh, yeah. I believe it. I believe yeah. it. Yeah. I believe it. When they look out at what they thought was a dark area of the of universe out there, they got, what, thousands of galaxies in that one little section. Yeah, if every everything, every single little point of light you see in that picture is a galaxy, not a star. A galaxy. It's, a it's not a star. It's a galaxy. And, and that that came as a result of I think the director of Hubble Space Institute. He had uh, his own time that he could allocate, and so that, that he said, "I'm going to. Well, I want to aim this thing for two weeks at this empty spot." And a lot of the other researchers said, "Ah, just a waste of time. Don't do it." and turned out to be perhaps one of the most meaningful pictures of, of the 20th century. Oh, yep, yep, you got it. <laughs> okay, well, any, any, any rover questions? <laughs> Still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got off on Cassini and uh, on uh, Actually, Hel Hubble. <laughs> I have a, because you mentioned SpaceX, you know, and uh, they sent Tesla into space. If they send a Tesla on the moon, would they work? Will they be able to drive the Tesla on the moon? No, uh, no, it, it, I don't believe it would. But <laughs> you need to do some testing and uh, uh, yeah, uh, I don't believe it would. But basically, when I look at the space launch system, you know what, they're not gonna do one thing. The Saturn V had everything in one vehicle when you went to the moon. Everything was in that one vehicle. Have you seen the Artemis III 
uh, rendezvousing with this halo orbit up there around the moon, the gateway thing, and then a yeah. separate vehicle that goes down and lands on the moon. Not, and the starship, this gigantic starship with the big elevator on the side. <laughs> I saw your picture. It's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, it's, I, I said that. You could quote me. Ron said it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't understand how they got into this situation. And uh, so, probably flying boosters back to the to the point of launch for reusability was, was kind of crazy too. Until we finally got a GPS to do accurate targeting on things like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's it's been really fascinating to see all of that uh, percolate up when you don't have to worry about Congress and yearly budgets. Uh, that uh, Musk, Musk doesn't have to worry about. Oh, on the uh, on the rover, one of the gauges on on the control panel, or at least on one of them, it was for the velocity gauge. It looked like an old World War II uh, period meter from a, from a radio. My dad once had. Oh yes, you're right. You're right. Those those came. They're Bo- it's Boeing, and yeah, they yeah. they use they use parts off of. Uh, where have we got that picture? Yep, I could probably it was up further. Uh, they used uh, they used the uh, gauges I showed, as well as the. Uh, now I get it there. Yeah. Go back here. There we go. Okay. Yep. Let's go. I get the. I don't know if I can get the video to show or not. It doesn't want to show in this mode here. I've been disabled. Yeah, but that that uh, speedometer. You're right. Was a it's a little. Uh, and by the way, the astronauts had an internal battle of the since there was no telemetry, they could quote higher velocity. So 16 went a little faster than 15. Okay. <laughs> 17 went the fastest of all. They quoted 18 kilometers per hour on Apollo 17. We have no, you just have to believe. And plus, remember that with the visor on their helmet, looking through that, that uh, uh, visor, uh, at this small gauge there, uh, there's got to be some inaccuracy in that measurement, <laughs> in that that reading. Yeah, it's just funny to see see a Collins radio gauge on a lunar rover. Just beautiful. Oh, yeah. Yep. And look at the ones for the uh, temperatures and the amps, and uh, uh, he had to use what was available. And uh, yeah. uh, the uh, they did at times have uh, uh, we did have uh, some switches failed. Uh, the I think on a both Apollo 15 started out the forward steering didn't work, and uh, uh, on the first EVA, so they went just a rear steering, which is a little awkward for them. Uh, but uh, when they came back out for the second EVA, the forward steering worked. So they said, "Oh, the guys at Marshall fixed it. We didn't <laughs> do anything. <laughs> uh, they probably jostled something loose, or uh, maybe something was too cold. Uh, who knows?" But I had to take. Uh, uh, system the qualification unit over to an army test facility and do a cold test on it to uh, to and when the astronaut came out and turned the switch on it worked the uh, the, the rear steering uh, the forward steering worked in that army test we did a lot of that extra testing I haven't shown you all about uh, I didn't t- didn't talk at all about the uh, the 1G trainer which was a, a unique vehicle itself with its rubber tires yeah what was the handling of, of that like it was very difficult to try to manage something unless you have some sort of counterbalance on the on the shaft uh, of the rover they they basically 
they never drove it that far. The 1G trainer, uh, they had a little sand pit down there at Kennedy. Uh, uh, so they didn't go very far distances and they didn't have craters to, to go through and to bounce around. I think bouncing around, as you saw in that video, uh, trying to go through the craters, which John Young did, he was in a fairly level area too. Apollo 17, they had uh, uh, much more of a challenge to uh, uh, in, the, in the more mountainous region and a lot, a lot of boulders to avoid too, uh, which are in some of the pictures. I encourage you all to look at the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, which has very good documentation on all of this, which I've helped them along the way. I'm, I'm just finishing up uh, an app for the App Store that takes the, the 360 degree panorama small emissions and, and puts them in the VR system. And when I put my goggles on, man, I am there. It is just really, reading experience. I've, and uh, I've been wondering what would it take to add some sort of motion, if anything, even to the rovers in the picture, make it rock back and forth a little bit if, you, if you're looking around. But anyway, it's, it's like I, saw, I looked at your little your, uh, uh, app application. That looks really nice. Yep, yep, that's, that's good. Uh, uh, the fact that they also did the, that, that's Apollo 16 in that simulation, uh, which we had uh, good information from the lunar, the folks, Noah Petro and the folks at Goddard that did the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, it's been up there now for what, going on 13 years? I think so, yeah. And uh, uh, been orbiting, uh, they, they had a, a six month initial goal and they've quadrupled it, well, multiplied it by 20 times. Uh, that's amazing system that's still up there orbiting and providing good data. And uh, let's, let's hear it for over-engineering things. Oh yes. That was a very, very good system. So Clementine, Clementine was pretty good too. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was pretty impressed with Clementine. Oh, yes. What they, what they returned. Then you have the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter as well, which has been also there, what, about 20 years? Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. And, and Kepler's intended lifetime is five years, which means 50 years from now, it'll probably still be working. Oh, yep, yep. Ron, thanks for thanks for letting me chat here a little bit. I've always loved the rover. I've always wanted to do uh, at least, if, if nothing more, a full scale replica of the panel and maybe the handle. Um, and I would love to do like a one sixth RC model of one. You put a little, real little TV camera on it and so on. Send, send me your email address, and I'll send you that uh, 3D print uh, uh, file. The uh, the file uh, that okay. is to do the 3D printing of that. Uh, Overlay we put on the joystick. Um, I'm going to send it to you in chat. And uh, what was my other action? My other action item was to get some information for the fellow about uh, different soils. And uh, that, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll remind you. I'll remind you. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, wrong. I, I, I do have a chat. Yeah. Okay. Right, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to make sure he got my email. Uh, well, I don't, I don't want to branch out from this right now. Nice, don't worry. I'll, I'll yeah. give it, I can give okay. it to, to, uh, to Ron. Right. Don't worry. Right. If I branch out of here, I found that you lose it. You can't get it back. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's happened. I have to don't get, worry. Yeah, that, so Ken, uh, Ken and I did a good practice before this all started here because uh, I've seen other people get on and they say, duh, it's not working. <laughs> and it's very frustrating. But, uh, but uh, yeah, today so frustrating that I forgot to show you all that uh, video of the Apollo 16 Lunar Grand Prix. 
See, that was the situation where we'd done the testing and the modeling of all the, the performance of the rover. As you saw that, that, that uh, circular uh, test bed there and the, uh, the, the, the high velocity testing. And uh, they still wanted to get some more. I don't know that that video, uh, by the way, the video I showed y'all, that's been enhanced. Someone took out uh, the original 16 millimeter crude film and somehow they processed it to give you that good image now. Fairly yeah, good it was, image. It was really crisp. I, I don't think I've ever seen it that crisp before. Yes, yes. I, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I don't know exactly where I got that, but uh, uh, so, uh, uh, but it didn't have a label on it saying, hey, don't copy it. So. <laughs> oh, um, on 15 and 17, do you, did the LMPs ever get a chance to drive the thing since no. uh, Charlie Duke didn't? No, 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 no. The commanders only ever drove. There, I've often been asked here about what would have happened if an astronaut had gotten sick? Namely, first question is, would they have gone outside and done a single astronaut exploration? I don't believe it. They, they, it's a buddy system mm -hmm. where it's important to have your buddy there with you. And, uh, or, but, and if you'd have had a problem while they're out driving, the guy on the right he would not have taken over the left side seat because the seat was arranged to fit him, to fit the other astronaut. The guy on the right would have had to drive like you do in England uh, on the right side uh, if, if there'd been a problem with the, with, the, with the commander on the left side, but that yeah. never happened. So I, I imagine they did a lot of training. The LMPs did a lot of training on the 1G trainer just for that. Well, but the, in the training, they never switched seats. It was always, it was always a, so the LMP still on the on the right side obviously had some training for emergency. Well, he did. He did. The, he he did a little training. Yeah. But uh, on the moon, he never got to drive. The lunar module pilot uh, was there to uh, do other duties and uh, mainly look at the maps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which were on that on that off the side of that console, too. You can sort of see in this picture, you can sort of see the map holder over here, map holder. Yeah, one of the things that's on my shopping list is to get a, a used, a, a flown lunar rover map. Oh, yeah, that, 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 would be, that would be good. Uh, some, yeah. of, some of the items I had, I used to have a signal processing unit wax box. Hmm. Believe it or not, I put that wax, they, what they did was they took that wax box and they sawed it in half because they wanted to see when it solidified, uh, after the testing, when it solidified, what was the, what was the, did it, did it do it uniformly? And it proved yes, even though the saw blade was probably pretty hot, mm -hmm. uh, they did it. And, but I had that two halves of a, a wax box. I put it in my attic, duh. <laughs> <laughs> the wax melted, a puddle of wax. Uh, but uh, that's, that's the only uh, piece of hardware that I had that I can remember here that, uh, and it was, uh, it was a test, it was off that, uh, Forward mm -hmm. chassis tub test. I've I seen very little rover hardware pop up on the market. Uh, I'll tell you one, here's one story for you. Uh, when I went to Smithsonian one day, I was working on a different Defense Department project, went over to Smithsonian, and they had on display fender extensions that had been returned from the moon on Apollo mm -hmm. 17. Yeah. That Commander Cernan, we went out there after the mission, we got a picture of all of us. We signed the extender extension off the qualification unit that we tried to use to say, hey, could that be replaced? Take the front one, put it on the rear. No, it wouldn't work. But 
he had actually brought back from the popped him off the rover on the moon. There's a picture of the rover uh, sitting on the moon where he popped off the, 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 the fender extension fix, the map fix with the tape tape in the middle, okay, and the uh, clamps and the another fender. He donated them to the Kansas Cosmosphere. So oh, if you yeah. want to see those, go to the Kansas Cosmosphere, and they're there. But they did point was they never told any of us that worked on the project. We joked around out there in Houston as we took a picture, you know, and showed them that fender extension that we'd all signed uh, off mm -hmm. the qual unit. Uh, they joked around and we said, hey, you guys didn't bring anything back, did you? They, they just mum. And then <laughs> to come to Smithsonian and find that thing, that was very surprising to me and uh, a little frustrating, but hey, that's history. Yeah, uh, Cernan's estate has been selling off some of his map pages one at a time, and there's one from Scott. Gosh, do y'all know the whole stamp thing? Oh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Apollo 15, Apollo 15? Yeah. Oh, uh, that, was a, that was a scandal. Yeah, I, I had one of Scott's envelopes from that. Oh, gosh. They each had 100 themselves, and so, and they, they were- they finally worked it out that uh, at least Al Warden, he got his, uh, he got his given back to him. Oh, yeah. All, all of them did. All of them it was, did. It was ruled that they were private property of, of the astronauts, and so they got all of them back. That's a bit of an extension that they were property of the astronauts because they were doing a duty and carrying things. And uh, uh, the only way they got them to the moon was using all these systems that somebody else had developed. <laughs> <laughs> I was... Warden had no great love for a Scott after that. Oh, yes. And if you, well, and if, if you, the other astronauts were booted out, essentially, they may have stayed around for meetings and things. They didn't last long, and they were not they were not slated up to do any future missions. And a few years ago, I saw Warden speak at the San, San Diego Aviation Museum, and the moderator asked him about about you know, the friendship that the astronauts of the crews make. With each other and so on. Now, what a great friend Scott must have been. And I, I said, I thought to myself, oh no, please, uh, Al, don't say it, please. <laughs> and he, he said, well, we never really were that great, great of friends, but, but he said, they Scott, probably the best pilot we had. Yeah, he, he kind of portrayed it that he was dragged into it, huh? Yeah, sort of, yeah. And, and, I, and yeah, he, I spoke to him once, mentioned that, and he just gave me a, a, a he rolled his eyes in the room and he didn't. Feel particularly good after that about it. There were, but 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 I will say here, if somebody's asked me, would you ever fly on a rocket? No, I wouldn't. They were very, very brave men to go and do that, do what they did, all of them, and uh, especially uh, the guys on Apollo Eight who went went on got on that Saturn V for the first time and flew all the way out to the moon. Didn't land, but uh, mm -hmm. got pretty far out there and read from the Bible of yeah. all. Of them. Yeah, read scripture from the Bible. Actually, about a year and a half or two years ago, Jim Lovell sold his Bible that flew on the flight. Now they didn't read it from that copy; they had their own little cards that he passed around. But but that would have been a, a terrific item to have. Mm, 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 mm. Yep. And, and as I talked, I was talking to Lovell a few years ago. How many? How many times a week does someone come come up to him and say, "Yeah, you were in that thing that blew up," and he said, "You know, talked about Apollo 13 and stuff." And he said, "I, I really think Apollo is much more significant." I, I nodded at that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep.
it's sad to see some of these guys leaving, leaving us two or three a year now. Well, the ones that survive, there's not many survived. There are five, there's still five living moonwalkers and there are still two crews entirely intact. Right. All the late nine are still intact. Yep, yep. Well, I have to, I have to get on some other things. Uh, th thanks for taking the extra time to chat. It's been really fun. Well, yep. And uh, you can tell that I am opinionated about certain things. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I, I do honestly, sincerely think that they better get serious about this dust. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and do some things to help out the astronauts. Gosh, Apollo 12 crew, uh, Pete Conrad said, as I quoted there, he said, an overgarment is needed. We just got that false testing before Apollo 15 uh, that, that said that, hey, no sweat. You could clean off the dust. Mm -hmm. All absorbance stays at 0.07. And it didn't, it didn't work that way. Never did. Never did. And uh, so. Uh, well, I, I, I heard a few months ago on how the, the Artemis moon suits are coming along. And it was spent some, NASA spent something like a billion dollars already in designing new spacesuits. How do you spend a billion dollars on designing new spacesuits? However, I imagine a lot of it is going to some sort of dust uh, mitigation stuff. Well, I'm not, so sure. I'm not so sure of that. I'm like you, that uh, the previous suits certainly did the job. And uh, there was a little leakage, I think, on, uh, on one of them, uh, one mission. But uh, still, Yeah, still and those, those are used only for a short period of time. They have a limited lifetime. They, they did, about, they did. Yeah, when talking about continuous presence, they'll have to have suits that can fit, that can be adjusted to fit several crew members and have to have parts easily replaced as the dust just starts grinding away some of the seal. And probably, and, and the, like having a little airlock and the oversuit is, is, sounds like a really good idea to try to mitigate some of that. Yeah, uh, yes, yes. But I'm not getting good feedback. Uh, I, I've got an astronaut on my team here and I won't give her name, but uh, she is. She gets much kickback out there that uh, they uh, they're going along with this uh, electrostatic magic uh, that they're going to be able to clean the suits. And uh, uh, but that's time that's wasted. That's mm -hmm. wasted science time. Housekeeping time is wasted time. And we we sat there after the mission Apollo seventeen was over. We said, man, we wiped our brow. And we said we got through it, but. Uh, Gosh, we spent so much time there with them mm -hmm. trying to brush off radiators and, and get us get us back to uh, what previous testing on Earth had shown would, would happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, did you know if, if Cernan brought his brush back? Uh, I, I, I'm almost convinced that that brush was in that same exhibit at Smithsonian. Okay, I, you see it all the time and he's brushing off the lens of the camera. Yep, yep. Uh, well, well, they had a, a separate little camera brush, I thought, uh, somewhere. But it may have been uh, it, a, a smaller. A smaller yeah, it may have been a little smaller than the big one that they had. But I think that dust brush is a Smithsonian exhibit too. Mm -hmm. See, Smithsonian owns all surplus uh, spacecraft, all space items, and as such, uh, they. Uh, I've tried to make some comments to the lady up there at the warehouse, the Smithsonian, uh, but uh, I get no response from them. Uh, they, uh, they're a little bit misled at times about what they say about the vehicle. Mm -hmm. 
I've been doing a photo essay called Apollo Up Close, and I've been taking some really close-up pictures of some of my stuff just for the, the pure artistic look at, of it. And, and I may want to go see about getting something going with the Smithsonian to go back and take some of the other pictures back there. But I got some just beautiful pictures of just the wiring harness on back of the control panel, for example, and just how artistic and, and, and terrific it looks. Yep. Think about that wiring on the rover. I had to allow for it to fold up. That oh, folding yeah. up. I did tell you all the side story. Uh, early on in the program, after Boeing got the contract initially, they wanted to have a display out here at a, uh, we had a cotton mill over here in Huntsville called the Huntsville Industrial Complex, Hick Building. And that's where Boeing was located first off before they moved out on the, out on the, out to, by the airport system. And uh, they had a, a whole bunch of TV people there and, and uh, dignitaries. And they had an astronaut that's gonna come out off the porch there, gonna pull the D handle, and the rover was going to self-deploy. Well, he pulled the D-handle and it proceeded to almost explode into many, <laughs> many different parts, fell onto the floor. Okay, my friend who was working on the uh, uh, rover at the time, a structural guy, he, uh, he says that his boss called him, called him into his office. He says, Werner has called. And Werner says, we will fix this. <laughs> we will fix this. And so... Marshall took over the real responsibility of working on that deployments, folding up and working the system because uh, it, it, the contractor needed help. And uh, it's, a, it's a shame we only have have one shot uh, images of only one of the rovers being deployed on 15 because they had the separate camera. Yeah, uh, on 15, right. 17, right. we never actually saw any. They didn't even take any any film footage of rover deployment. Yeah, but it's not very good. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. And the only, and also on, on 15 is the only bit of, of video we have off the rover of looking at driving around. Of course, Scott had to drive behind the limb so he never actually saw it, which is a shame. That's a little missed opportunity for, for photo people. Yep, yep. Well, we got the Apollo 16 Grand Prix. It's, it's good. And somebody oh, yeah. improved it even. It's, it's good now. It's great. What I showed y'all. And Ken's got that. We had Ken. Ken was set up here to do a total backup if we'd had problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Got to have your backup. Got to have your backup. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Fact, now I really have to go. Thanks a lot, Ron, for the extended chat. I really appreciate it. This, this picture, in that picture on the left side there of me standing by the, uh, the uh, vibration test unit, mm -hmm. this is not the qual unit. The qualification unit was located at the Space and Rocket Center for a while after the missions. But the Smithsonian came in the dark of the night, what we say, and they, they took back the qualification unit, took it up to Washington. They somehow gave, they gave the Space and Rocket Center this vibration test unit, which you'll notice did not have the black and white stripes on the wheels. Black and white stripes are shown over here. That was so that you can measure the relative motion of the wheel with respect to the chassis. There's black and white stripes on the chassis. Mm -hmm. That was part of the Apollo 16, Apollo 15 Lunar Grand Prix, what they're going oh, yeah. to do. And uh, I doubt seriously with the 16 millimeter film that they had and processing and they had capability back at that time, we'd ever been able to deduce anything about the mobility. And the rover had worked so well. I didn't tell you all the other deal. What do you think the power usage was of the rovers out of the available power? 
In total available or the amps per hour? Well, per percentage-wise, percentage-wise, out of, out of the batteries that were there, uh, 121 amp hours on each battery. What was the total, what, what was the usage on, on each mission? Now, does that include the, the, the post asset views from the rover and TV views of the rover going two or three days after that? Well, it, it, it's driving, it's driving, uh, even uh, using, providing power to the uh, lunar communication relay unit mm -hmm. on one and a half of the missions. Uh, the answer is uh, a third of the power. Mm -hmm. On each mission, we used about a third of the power. I can show you, I can, get, I can send that chart to y'all. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, about I a never third, heard that. third of the available power. We were much over-designed. And uh, well, the also, fact, yeah, we started, the fact out, that, we started out that uh, we, we uh, uh, were, were much, much over-designed in that, in that respect. And uh, uh, the frustrating yeah. thing was all of our testing, like in that tub assembly, mm -hmm. uh, even up uh, was, was basically clean, clean radiators. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think we got more than about 10 to the minus eight uh, pumping, pumping. Uh, I, I think I think we got about ten to minus eight in the uh, big vacuum chamber, but that had some super pumps on that the fusion pumps. That those that was uh, quite a quite an accomplishment. Hmm. That whole testing there that I showed in that picture, I didn't stress out to y'all. I, I told you a little bit that uh, pitched up at an angle to simulate mm -hmm. going up a slope mm -hmm. with dynamometers under each wheel to match the speed of the wheel, and uh, all that in the thermal vacuum chamber. That was that was a great accomplishment. Yeah, of course, the like qual, qual unit was used for much more extreme. The acceptance testing on the flight units was much reduced because mm -hmm. you didn't want to overtax them. Maybe a fourth of the total driving time. I can't remember exactly. But they did do thermal vac on the flight vehicles. Hmm. And how long before um, mission was the, the rover? attached and, and stowed on, on the, the limb? Uh, I'm thinking a couple of weeks, because see, that whole assembly was rolled out on the crawler. Uh, it was probably maybe up to three weeks. I, I can't remember exactly, but, uh, uh, and then I, I can't remember, was there one mission where they had a lightning storm coming up or something and they, they rolled back in? Of course, now, one of the missions, did Apollo 12 get hit by lightning? Well, yeah, yeah, and I actually have, I asked him, Conrad, it, it was commander's prerogative to abort the mission if he felt they were in any danger. And that was done through a translational hand controller that Conrad had. Uh, during launch, you, you'd push it in and twist it 90 degrees and would, it would abort the flight, uh, sent, uh, take you away from the, the Saturn. And so I, I know his hand was gripping that knob during that time. And I have that knob in my collection. Oh gosh, you've got quite a collection. I've got quite a collection. And, uh, no, nothing from the rover though. I, I've seen one tire pop up. I know one guy has who has uh, the antenna. Uh, and then, I've, I've seen I've seen that guy. I've seen that. Yes, yes, I've seen that. That's and, we, in fact, we were considering we we're going to have to uh, try to contact him and borrow that for this uh, Polaris replica. Then I found that antenna, that, that umbrella, the umbrella. Mm -hmm. That uh, we used the uh, had the right number of ribs and uh, had a very good seamstress out at the space and rocket center that 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 uh, did that webbing. Uh, that that uh, she didn't she didn't have to tackle the, uh, the 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 wire mesh wheels were quite a quite an uh, 
effort. They are essentially radial tires. I didn't say this. They are radial tires in a way, and they had a bump stop inside. You can see the bump stop. Oh yeah. Bump stop, which prevented them from over deflecting. There was one event, one example of a fist size depression on Apollo 17 tire. I don't know which one it was, but uh, 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 that's the only evidence we had of any, it it wasn't damaged, it still worked. I try to stress to people, I was recently working with some other folks here, they're trying to develop another rover. And I says, you guys better sure have capability in there. So if the the astronauts are there, they can disable and do free wheeling. Each Mm -hmm. one of these wheels, each one of these wheels had a little, the little hooks down here. Mm -hmm. And they took a, a, uh, uh, this, this, see this, this piece back here, this little sitting out here, yeah. helping with getting in, in and out. They could take that off and put it in that little hook and disable the wheel, free wheel for free wheeling. Mm-hmm. You better be serious about having free wheeling capability. You don't want to drag a bad wheel around. Uh, I don't know if they're listening or not. <laughs> well, how, how much did the uh, each of the wheels weigh? About fifteen pounds. Okay, yeah, that, that that's really amazing how. Uh, a wheel, uh, the, the mesh from the wheel popped up at auction a few, few years ago. And yes, you know, there's, there's, a pat, there's a patent on that. I can send you the patent. <laughs> the, the guys at General Motors, they, they got it patented uh, hmm. just before the Hall 15 mission. It was patented. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, the titanium uh, treads worked real well. Mm-hmm. Good traction. It allowed the dust to go inside and get thrown out. What you saw in that video that uh, the fenders were absolutely needed. And uh, uh, what were the fenders made out of? Fiberglass. Okay, I, 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 I was thinking, could those fiberglass. be fiberglass? Would those would that survive the lunar environment? Oh yes, it did. It did. Uh, now also notice this vibration test unit, like the Qual unit, had uh, in the first rover when it was delivered had uh, a different uh, makeup of the fiberglass. It was they were almost white colored. Mm-hmm. Okay, white colored. They, uh, they called us up one day and they said they changed the uh, process of, of building the, the, the fenders and uh, uh, they looked orangish brown. And they said, uh, would this affect us thermally? We said, we assume that they're gonna be covered by dust anyway, so we don't really care. And it did give them a good contrast with the American flag. Oh, yeah, each, one, yeah. each one of the fender extensions had the American flag on it. So it, uh, it gave that yeah, good it, contrast. Yeah. And uh, by the way, when we did that Polaris uh, vehicle, the, ro- the uh, we were at the point where we were trying to decide what to do to try to build up fiberglass, fiberglass fenders like that. Mm-hmm. We found out here, somehow at the Space and Rocket Center, somebody had stored away somewhere, some boxes that had the mold in there mm-hmm. for, the fenders, for the fenders. And that was amazing because that particular building had been had a fire in it. We were mm-hmm. very lucky that uh, that mold, the molds were still there. So the Claris guys took and they they molded out uh, uh, their own fiberglass uh, mm-hmm. fenders for the Claris vehicle. It looked looked fairly fairly accurate, and uh, they fit a good sized wheel in there, and it uh, it worked out great. Mm-hmm. Uh, did the did the control panel that fold up with everything else? Was that well, the display console? Uh, yeah. Did you see the? Uh, 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 it had to go up. It had to go upwards so that the wheels could fold in and not hit it. Oh yeah, yeah. So it had to go up a little bit, and the armrest was added. The fiberglass armrest, that orange-colored arm armrest, which is actually right about there. Armrest. Astronauts found that they needed that armrest so that he could. When you think about it, uh, it didn't have a steering wheel, so he's getting all that vibration information fed back to him through that handle. Through that handle. 
he needed that armrest there to, to give me some support. And uh, that was a finding. And, uh, but yes, the console did fold up a little bit, a little bit, maybe 30 degrees or so. Mm -hmm. All this other equipment was, was taken out of the lunar module bays and placed on the rovers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, we didn't talk much about the aft pallet back there and all the equipment back there on it. And uh, that was a great aid to them. Although uh, Gene Cernan commented that after, after the third EVA, the lock wasn't working, the latch, where the, they had a fold-out section of it, and the latch wasn't working, was banging around due to, due to dust. Mm -hmm. dust. But that was due to dust because the mm -hmm. extension had been knocked off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now, since since 16 also had the fender knocked off. Uh, 15, you will see. Now, this interesting story. Oh, oh, you hit upon another interesting story I could show you here in the picture here. Okay. Yes, the left front fender extension is not there. Mm -hmm. However, we did not discover that until I was in the photo guys processing room back at Marshall well after the mission, maybe several days after the mission, once they got that film in, you know, mm -hmm. they look at it. We did, the astronauts never said a thing about it, about hmm. losing that fender extension, but it was lost here uh, well into the, I think in the, uh, bit, about mid, mid EVAs that uh, the front, but see with the dust being the wheel going around uh, in this direction, it was casting the dust out to the front yeah. and uh, didn't, didn't cause the problem that you had with the rear fender extension. But yes, you're right, Apollo 15, that's why I can always tell a picture of Apollo 15 because it's got the left front fender extension gone. Now, since you're pointing it out, I've never heard that story. I'm going to see if I can go back to the, some of the downlink video and see if it yes, may you can. be visible. Uh, there's no mention in the, there's no mention in the in the audios of any of, of that having ever happened because uh, not in the uh, uh, if you look at the reports, the uh, flight reports, it may be mentioned there. But I can't remember it. It was more that we we discovered it ourselves uh, in the pictures. You can see the cover. It covers open here. It covers open here. And we're trying to get some cool down. Uh, one of uh, gosh, we never talked. We didn't talk about seeing the uh, ascent stage take off. And Ed, oh, yeah. Captain uh, Ed Fendel, uh, we called him Captain Video. Uh, he was the commander that had the joystick of the TV camera. Mm -hmm. And Apollo 15 and 16, he never got that done. Uh, not could coordinate, it. but Apollo 17, he finally coordinated the three second delay and, and got that accomplished. Uh, yeah, I, I noticed that when it happened, how just really wonderful it was on the last mission, how much yes. longer you saw it go. Boy, boy, it did it take off. That ascent stage takes off oh, fast. Yeah. yeah. Fast. And on, on 17, they were they were hoping to actually be able to see the ascent stage when they are going to, when they, after undocking and send it back to the lunar surface. And it crashed, I think, about a mile south of the landing site. And they they were hoping they could actually catch that on on the camera, but but no, it, it wasn't visible. And one of the missions, I think, maybe it was the 16. One of the missions, the ascent stage had no RCS capability after they undocked, so it's it was in orbit for a while around the moon by itself. It didn't crash. One hmm. one of the missions uh, didn't actually do that crash. Well, so there's some a couple of guys. I tried this myself and I heard of these other guys who managed to succeed and that was to find the actual crash, crash sites for the ascent stages. Yep. Also, it's interesting, the S4B, crash, S4B cache crashes, the third stage of the rocket. They yeah, and, and obviously those are really huge 
yes, yes, that's that's, that's big. They're really that's huge big. formation. You, you almost you almost wonder if, if some of the flight planners considered the possibility of going to one of those crash sites and getting this newly undug uh, uh, material from from way that's under. That's interesting. The, uh, that's an interesting point. The whole site selection uh, was an interesting process, <laughs> but. Uh, because astronauts Apollo 15, they wanted to drive that down into the reel. But Houston had to tell them, no, guys, uh, got to get back. Got to get back. Yeah, well, I, they walked a little bit down into the reel where it actually disappeared from the video. But they said, oh, they, they, were, they, they weren't on the steep part. They were not on the steep part at all. We, we were more concerned that uh, they get on a too steep incline oh, yeah. and, and couldn't come back out. Because the <laughs> rover did not have infinite capability to climb out. Yeah, 15 has always been my favorite just because the landing site is the coolest looking of them. Oh, yeah. Grand Canyon on the moon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, that was great. It's good talking to you. Oh, we better yeah. let y'all go here. This, yes. Uh, the, unless y'all yeah. have some more questions. Uh, no, I'm, I, I'm planning. I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied. Okay. If I have any more, I'll, I'll send you some email. Okay. Okay. Oh. Yep. Yep. We're it's down to thir we're down to 13 participants. I saw we had 31, I think, at one time. <laughs> Pretty good. 30, 32, 33. Yep, 33? Okay, yeah, that's great. And, and actually, each sign might have multiple people behind. Mm, yes, I heard a couple yeah. of people chiming in. and uh, yeah. I didn't yeah. know I was hogging it for everyone else. Right. And the people come come in and out, come in and out. So it, it's more than this. Yes. Right. Right. Okay. Th thanks, Ron. Good evening. Well, thank you, sir. You're very welcome. And... Uh, it's good talking to y'all and uh, here. we'll sign off, I guess, and uh, uh, try to come out there sometime and uh, maybe uh, like Ken said, maybe uh, get together in some fashion here. Uh, I didn't know if Madhu, Madhu Tangavalu was able to uh, chime, call in from Southern Cal or not. He was pretty Yeah, and, uh, yeah we'll, we'll hook up with him, with yes. him and arrange for your uh, visit here. <laughs> yes, but not for a while. I'm not going to travel anywhere. I know, um, I know. We did Keep it back safe. in September, went to uh, San Carlos. Well, we went to San Francisco and we uh, drove down to San Carlos where my son lives and daughter and only grandson. And uh, it was uh, an adventure itself. No, no incidents, nobody attacking the stewardesses or anything, but uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was right on time. And uh, it was, it was great. It was great. Yeah, it's amazing. But when you talk about these electrical vehicles, uh, I just don't understand how you convert over here. You're going on a Sunday afternoon on the freeway down at 101, out of going down to the south. It's constant. It's packed with cars wow. on Sunday afternoon. Exactly. Uh, even even uh, Friday midnight. Midnight. Yeah. Yeah. The packed. We're gonna we're gonna build. Uh, the government's probably going to finance it and all for Elon, but we're going to build electric cars and electric charging stations. What do you do in traffic jams? You're burning your battery <laughs> energy. I don't. I don't know. They, they will come up with some crazy idea, using drone to deliver the battery to you on a highway jam or something like that. Yeah. Well, there was some actor here that his Tesla burned up in the traffic jam or something. Oh. <laughs> Actually, I think there was a news, the, the, the news yesterday or today, 
Mm. In Switzerland or somewhere, I forgot, they, they temporarily banned the Tesla Model 3 because the rental car company has a car crash. Mm -hmm. So they banned the fleet in that rental car company, mm. you know, uh, uh, and waiting for investigation or yeah. something. That's right. a big accident. Well, yep, yep. All right. So, yeah, it's very late over there. Actually, we have tons more questions, but uh, we will uh, wait, wait for your uh, uh, visit here or next presentation. Well, uh, is there any way you can uh, put out the chat there? Or, or okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can send. I'll send. I'll send. Send it to you. So the chat. Yeah, I could. I could look at those questions, and I'm going to look at that lunar soil information that one fellow and uh, and uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, actually. I already email you uh, Mike's email address. Right. Yeah, the gentleman who who chatted with you mm -hmm. for a long Very time. Good. I already forward you his email address, but Very I will good. forward you the uh, chat. Okay. Thank you, sir. I'll let you Thank go you. now. And uh, it was good good to share with y'all. Yeah, it's so so exciting. It's amazing. Peace. Peace. Yeah, good night. Good night. Good night.